Skeptic episode 35. I'm dog whistling bell end Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by child sized piss goblin Toby Young. Those introductions courtesy of Twitter. Coming up, The Guardian deletes a dodgy cartoon, the SMP cancel one of their own, and Stephen Crowder gets even louder in a leaked video. Plus, loads more big stories, and of course, peak woke. But, Toby, sorry for calling you a, a child sized piss goblin. I thought it was fairly innovative as, as far as insults go. And it was so funny because last week we were talking about. Why do the left keep using this phrase bellend and things like cockwomble and these cutesy insults? And then I looked on my Twitter and many people were calling me a bellend. In one case, a dog whistling bellend, a massive bellend. One person said far right moron. And this wasn't even on the worst tweet. There was one tweet that had like two or 3,000 comments. I was like, don't even click on that one. That was about the <laughs> Marina woman versus Jacob Rees-Mogg. So I was like, okay, that's the one they've come from and they're flocking to other ones as well. I was actually able to laugh it off that day. You know, some days you can just laugh it off. And then Lewis Schaefer called me fat and ugly on the phone. And then I chose that to be the thing that upset me instead. But I was so proud that I laughed off the bell end thing. But then you sort of outdid me by being called a child sized piss goblin. And also another thing about, I'm not even sure you want to say, but the guy from the, who renamed the Brecon Beacons insulted you, didn't he? Yeah, the guy. So there was a good story in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, actually, I think it was the Saturday Mail um, uh, by Guy Adams um, revealing that the head of the quote, creative, unquote, agency that was tasked with renaming the Brecon Beacons to make them more green friendly um, uh, was actually a kind of uh, anti-Tory Welsh nationalist troll and had a long track record of, of tweeting some pretty unspeakable things, including calling me a Tory nonce. Um, and I, oh, I, this was when I when I um I know where this comes from because um I've encountered it before. I think it's it's it, it's a combination of well it, it's a combination of two things. First is that um, I'm supposedly in um, Jeffrey Epstein's little black book, um, uh, and someone put Jeffrey Epstein supposedly what's billed as uh, Jeffrey Epstein's little black book online, and you know almost every member of the great and the good is in this book including mine my name um and um it's certainly not a kind of um uh, a, a database of nonces and in fact it's not even jeffrey epstein's little black book it's um gillane maxwell's address book um not that that you know in itself exonerates you but it does include my phone number and sometimes you know whenever jeffrey epstein or gillane maxwell is in the news somebody will tweet this page from the little black book um, with my number on it, my mobile phone number, which is still my mobile phone number. And I'll get people calling me up um, to, to ask why I'm in the book. And I have to kind of patiently explain that I, I never met Jeffrey Epstein. I, I wasn't a, a guest on the Lolita Express. I, I've never been to Lolita Island. I never set foot in his house and so on. But that, that's, that, I think that, 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 that's part of the <laughs> reason I get called a Tory nonce. The other is that... Um, when uh, I read a piece in The Spectator sort of marvelling at Prince Andrew's stupidity for agreeing to be interviewed by Emily Maitlis on Newsnight, um, uh, saying that um, when I was being cancelled, when I was cancelled in 2018, on, on a much bigger scale than you, Nick, uh, when I was cancelled in 2018, um, I was invited by Emily Maitlis to go on to Newsnight to talk about being cancelled and she said you know i'll give you a, a fair hearing i'll let you set out the case for your own defense it'll be you know a very a very welcoming um 
warm interview and I was like yeah uh, and I, I was very tempted to do it but I talked my I talked it over with my wife and she advised me not to do it and I said that one of the reasons Andrew got into difficulties because he was separated from Fergie and didn't have a, a strong woman in his life to advise him you know how to sidestep these landmines um, but for some reason that was interpreted as me saying I too like Prince Andrew am a nonce of course, Prince Andrew is not a nonce, but this is how the, the the uncharitable left read this article. I too am a nonce, and that's why. Uh, but I wouldn't have been so stupid as to allow Emily Maitlis to skewer me on Newsnight because I'm more protective of my noncery or something like this. I don't know. Was, I don't exactly what the twisted loops of logic the left went through to 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 to. to read into this that this was somehow a confession on my part that I was in fact a nonce but anyway that's why I get called Tory nonce so the the, the, the low point for me one of the low points of, uh, of, of, of the last five years was being invited to the Durham Union to participate in a debate it was in 2019 and I was asked to defend the record in government of the Conservative Party and defend Boris Johnson in particular and there was a big student Labour contingent at this debate to support their person who was the local kind of militant tendency organizer for Durham. Um, and uh, every time I, every time I, you know, open my mouth to speak, someone in the background would shout, Jory nuts, Jory nuts, you nuts, including, you know, the, the militant tendency organizer. She referred to me as a nonce. And the, why that was kind of quite upsetting is that I, 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 I decided to kill two birds with one stone and had taken my daughter who was then, in um, lower sixth and thinking about which universities to apply for. So she was 16 and she'd also brought a friend of hers because they wanted to visit Durham and see what Durham was like, see if they were going to choose to go to university there. So they were in the audience along with my then, I think, um, 11-year-old son because we'd, we'd, we'd combined it with going to a QPR away game. So to be called, you know, a paedophile in front of your children and one of your children's friends, that was that was pretty bad. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that's the... That, the <laughs> Rather elaborate explanation for why they called a Tory nonce. That's your origin story. Well, Toby, can I just say that is is very harsh calling you a Tory nonce. I, for one, have have never thought of you as a Tory. Um, and and for me, <laughs> so sorry about that. I had to do it. And for me, I was called. I mean, similarly, I was called a far right moron. And I don't think anyone can realistically call me a moron. So um, the other thing I was going to say is the fact that you don't um, see. I've, I've had a go at myself there as well. So the idea that you um, what's funny to me is they call up. And you don't just sort of hang up like oh another it's another Epstein troll. You just explain it to them <laughs> patiently. <laughs> do you really do that when they call up? Well, I have done it once or twice. Yes, I really have. Um, uh, and, and and often, you know, they, they've they've initially been quite angry, you know, uh, 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 and they've they've you know they've, they've contacted this number because they're furious to discover that you know I'm seemingly a close friend of um, Jeffrey Epstein's. And so when I explained to them, you know, it's not actually his book, it's Ghislaine's book. Um, she was a friend of a girl I was dating at the time, didn't really know her, certainly did, never met him. They actually they actually sort of calmed down and become quite sympathetic and say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry to disturb you. That's amazing. Um, so- Oi, you're Toby, aren't you? You're the Tory nonce who went to Epstein Island. Let me explain why that's wrong. And you, <laughs> and like, exactly. Five minutes later, like, let me go for a drink with you, Toby. You seem like a top bloke. That's amazing. <laughs> Rationality, logic is winning. Um all right, well, that's the insults explained. Um, I thought maybe it's sort of, speaking of all these things, we could, and left the insults and, and such and the divide, I thought we could talk about my quick, quickly my meeting with the blob, as I was calling it. And um, just because it was really interesting, because I happened to have drinks with 
And obviously, this is not a big deal. I, I know these people because I live in North London, so I happen to have links with drinks. Sorry, with what and links with what I'm calling the North London blob, which I've said it turns out they don't like being called. I'll just read my tweet because I wrote these tweets after like nine shots of rum total, not like shots on their own, but you know what I mean, like if it measures, which is which is not that many. But I was thinking these are very coherent. I wrote just had drinks with the North London blob, which it turns out they don't like being called. One thinks Starmer will rejoin the EU and save us all. Another listens to Alistair Campbell's podcast. Two thought Jacob Rees-Mogg belonged in jail. Felt like I was in a horror movie. And then I've added, felt like I was in Back to the Future and the photo is fading. Or Flight of the Navigator when he comes back into the wrong reality and his little brother is older than him. Extremely disturbing. What I was trying to convey was, they were all, you know what I mean? It's like body snatcher stuff. Like They were all this way. I, w- I was like in this wrong reality. They're all in the- And obviously when you go out of your echo chamber, this is what you face, right? They're mm. all just... Because we sort of think, who on earth goes to Alistair Campbell's podcast recording? Well, one of the very nice well, he, guys... They've gone to, they gone, to, they gone, to, they gone to it live, had they? They'd actually paid for a ticket at the Palladium or what, Theatre no. World, Drury Lane, or wherever it was. Hey, Mark. No, but it's similar, isn't it? <laughs> one was like, i tell you what's a good podcast. And it's like, Alistair Campbell. And it's like, right. And these are sort of the extended blob. These are kind of like, I don't know if I should out them, but they're kind of like BBC, Bank of England, Think Tank. You know, they're, they're very much... Now, someone tried to claim I was doing an anti-Semitic dog whistle and no i wasn't i was saying people who live in north london who work for things like the bank of england think tanks you know bbc whatever it's like this is not about jewishness so you freaks can all stop with that but it was just fascinating because you know two of them called jacob rees mogg the c word you know they don't mind that he's my colleague like it's just and two of them one of them said that he, he might he could end up in jail and, and one of them had already said that to me on an earlier occasion which is why i said two of them thought jacob rees mogg blonde in jail this, these are all facts why do um, they think he? What, what crime do they think he's committed? It's never very coherent. The first time I heard it, it was just because of his views, <laughs> and the second time I heard <laughs> it, it was because of um, COVID, um, you know, contract type things, and it, it, right. it's very incoherent. But their they their hatred is is immense, and their hatred for the government is immense. If you have to, I suppose, work with the government, especially if you're in finance or something, if you're, if you're in some sort of, you can see, you know, it's like why the civil service hate Rob. They just hate the government so much. This particular government. And they've got the illusion that Starmer will save us. I said, I'd, be, I'd love it if he would, if, if I really thought Starmer was going to save this country. Obviously, he's not. It's going to be the same, but worse on all the woke social issues. But they just think Starmer will save us. Some don't think that as much, but they some are a bit more nuanced. But yeah, they just live in a different world. And it is interesting to talk to these people and try. And I said, one thing I've noticed from the most right-wing people I know to the North London Remainer blob, everyone thinks the country is finished. And even uh, our friend Paul retweeted that. And I also said that they seem to frame everything in terms of competence. And of course, the government has been incompetent, but it's a kind of gaslighting that pretends there are no deeper political issues at stake, much as atheists, often the same people, pretend God has been debunked. So you see what I mean? There's a sort of framing of like, this government's incompetent. And that's the whole problem is competence. And it kind of pretends that we haven't got these deep political divisions. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a a common um, theme, I think, of... uh, when members of the kind of professional managerial class, particularly in the public sector, criticise the government for what are, to us, transparently political reasons. They don't frame it as disagreeing, or they don't usually frame it anyway, as disagreeing with the values of the government because they're egalitarians and it's a conservative government. No, it's it's, it's just to do with ignorance um, uh, and incompetence. Um, and basic moral flaws like lying. There's a kind of unwillingness to enter into 
an actual political debate. There's a kind of sidestepping of the real issues. And it's the same with, um, you know, the reaction of the blob to the victory of President Trump in 2016, the victory of vote leave in 2016. Um, they they, They won't engage and think, well, maybe the populists have a point. Maybe, you know, the neoliberal project is flawed. Maybe globalism has some costs, which, you know, we hadn't really factored in until now. Um, no, um, it, 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 the only possible explanation for why people could have voted for Trump or to leave the EU is because they've been misled. They've been misinformed. Hence the kind of war on misinformation and disinformation and hate speech. And so if they can only cleanse the kind of public square of these bad actors, um, uh, then everyone will agree with them. So there's, there are no fundamentals to disagree about. Uh, it, it's a sort of odd kind of almost a kind of um, phobia of, of getting into proper grown-up political conversations about what our values are and the future we'd like to have. And, you know, th- th- it's all about, in, the way they frame it, it's all about competence, um, as you say, and expertise. And this is the kind of, and I guess it's sort of, you know, this is partly um, the basis on which they think their legitimacy rests, you know, that they should be the ones in charge because because of their superior competence, uh, not because um, not because of their values. Yeah, it sort of is similar to Fukuyama, or at least how Fukuyama is some claim mischaracterized. It's a kind of end of history. It's kind of we've won, secularism is right, materialism materialism is right, God is wrong, atheism is right, and also liberal, you know, social democracy, whatever you want to call it, whatever, I don't exactly how you describe it, neoliberalism, sort of, but now with ecoism, yeah, this is all correct, science is settled on climate change, they aggressively believe that, of course, and it's like, this is yet, we have been pro- we've been proved right, and these idiot meddlers selling a fantasy, Jacob Rees-Mogg and other Brexiteers are just selling a fantasy, and they've tricked people, and one person said to me, well, look, the average person up in, he may have said Grimsby or somewhere like that. He said it, he said a name of some, you know, sort of northy Midlands remote place in England. And he said something like, they, I said, well, look, yeah, to, to people it was about, it was about borders and laws. Maybe they, and it wasn't particularly about economics. And they may not even think that we've done better economically, but it was about something else. And he said, no, it wasn't even about that. It was just about, I hate my life. Possible. I mean, I don't know, it's quite hard to prove that, but that, that's their view. And what was interesting is that kind of echoed the the Brexit civil war movie, TV movie with with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dominic Cummings. There's a key scene in that. I wrote about it on my Substack, where the leader of the Remain campaign listens to a focus group, and this woman has a complete meltdown and just sort of says, "No one cares about me and my views and my life. I don't matter. You know, no one listens to me." And then what he does is his response to it in the next scene, he realizes he's lost, but his response is, "Oh no, they got to them." They, they've been doing this for years. They're years ahead of us. So he's lost mm. the campaign. His response should have been, oh, no, these people have a point. We haven't listened to them. We've excluded them mm. from the, the political process. And to be fair, the person I was speaking to in the pub did say more of that. But in the film, it's like, oh, we've lost the debate. It's like, no, you, you never listen to these people and you're still not listening to them. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you'd think at some point, you know, the liberal left blob elite would recognise that they keep losing these arguments uh, when they're put to a vote um, because they're unwilling to kind of set out their case and flesh it out properly in the public square. You know, it's all about shaming those who disagree with you, smearing them, trying to cancel them and not actually engaging in a grown-up conversation. And that's why they, I think that's why ultimately they lost the Brexit debate. It's because um, instead of actually engaging with the concerns of people 
who had reservations about the European Union and and setting out the kind of positive case for being part of the EU and you know sharing their vision of what that future would look like they just it was all negative it was all smearing their opponents as racists and setting out the kind of economic case project fear you know whereas i think you know at least vote leave did 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 sort of did have a kind of coherent political kind of vision um, at its center, uh, and you know that's why the that's why the trans rights activists are losing the debate too, because they're unwilling to actually set out the case uh, for trans rights in the public square. It's all about smearing their opponents as bigots and turfs and transphobes, and hoping that alone will be enough to win the argument. It's not. Yeah, and um, and just just briefly, I got some funny responses on this, and talking about smears, I got some vicious responses. We call anti-Semitic. One person said things that didn't happen, volume, blah blah blah, blah with a long number. And I was like, yes, I couldn't possibly have gone to the pub with people from my area who have the opinions and preferences typical of people from my area. This is my Jussie Smollett moment. I mean, the idea that it couldn't be true, that I've made it up, <laughs> that I meet these people who say all the things that these people always say. Completely absurd. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, that, yeah. They're my neighbors. I, I often get that too. I often get accused of, of, of making stuff up. Uh, it's odd, isn't it? It's like, um, yeah, why, why would you... I mean, was, he, was he, Were you being accused of inventing these kind of... Um, this particular set of views because it sounded like a caricature rather than it being yeah, realistic. Maybe. They just thought you just you would never meet anyone who disagreed with you. But they were all <laughs> yeah, it could be because they live in echo chambers themselves. It was all they were all legitimate examples. You know, what they you know, listened to Alistair Campbell's podcast, two thought Jacob Rees might be in jail, one said Starmer will rejoin the EU and save us all. These are exactly <laughs> verbatim what they believe. But um and the other funny response in this well, nasty response, it missed, he means must, be alarming for you coming across people en masse who you have not managed to corrupt yet with your crap. So the idea that it's odd for me to come across these people. No, I live amongst these people all the time. It's your world. It's your world, bro. We're just living in it. We have to deal with these people all the time, especially in London, especially in North London. I said, strange response. If one lives in London, especially North, and doesn't vote Labour and worship the EU, etc., one is always in the minority. Two people called one of my colleagues a C-word to my face, and we deal with things like this every day. I mean, the idea is strange for us to come across. You, you, run, the, you run the world. You run the whole West. What are you, what are you talking about? Mm. Of course, that was one of the ideas that they, the blob people hated was the Matt Goodwin idea that, that the, yeah. they were the elites running things. No, it's, it's essential to their sort of heroic self-mythologizing that they are a beleaguered minority fighting a heroic battle against, you know, cishet white men running the world like us. Yes, it's yeah. a unlike refusal. Them. <laughs> yeah, unlike them. Yeah, it's a refusal to acknowledge just how powerful they are. That's absolutely essential to their self understanding. They are count a countercultural opposition movement. They're not actually the blob. <laughs> and what's mad is they look a little bit sheepish when I say, "How can I ever get a mortgage, guys? Any ideas?" And they just look. They can't even understand what it'd be like to not have a mortgage because they're all in well-off jobs. So they just sort of go, "Yeah, I don't know. I sympathise with you. I don't know how, how can I help you." And you're just like. <laughs> I'm actually in a different class to them. And it may be because of my mental problems when I was a young person. You know, I should be perhaps, but maybe I had the same background as some of them, normal comprehensive school, a lot of them, but some of them are public school. But it's it's probably because of my own failings, but it's funny that I've ended up in a different class from them, thus I have different views. I mean, couldn't you say to the, the person who works for the Bank of England, you know, couldn't you say, couldn't you spend a little less time focusing on managing risks over which you have very little control, such as climate risk, uh, and a bit more time on the things you do have control over, such as the inflation rate? Because if inflation was a bit lower, I might be able to afford a mortgage. Not a bad call. They blame um, 
the COVID for inflation and various other forces. And they say, oh, lockdown's a tiny part of it. And, you know, they, yeah, I always, I mean, I always say that. I say, what about these smart people like Liam Halligan and, and Ger- uh, Gerard Butler and, uh, did I say Butler? That's an actor. Gerard Lyons. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit tired today. Um, who, who, you know, have a counter position and they say, yeah, well, they may mean it, but they're wrong. <laughs> so what can you do? All right. Well, maybe that's enough on the old blob. I just thought that was interesting. And I also thought, I said as well, I thought my tweet was fairly self-deprecating. And, you know, I'm sort of saying it's a bit funny that I'm out there thinking this is like a dystopia horror movie. I'm kind of mocking myself a little bit as well. But this was not incorporated into people's nasty responses. But anyway, I think one of those QCs retweeted it. why I got in trouble. When any anyone with a QC or a KC, you're sort of in trouble, aren't you? Um, should we move on to our first official story, which is this Guardian cartoon has been very controversial, of Richard Sharp. And this was by this guy, Rosen, uh, Martin Rosen. Yeah. And he did this cartoon. And, and, and you look at it and you think, well, that's bad. So I've been through different phases with this. And I'll find out what you think in a sec. It, it's, people are saying it's anti-Semitic. And I look at it and thought, is it or is it just a caricature? Then I look in the little box he's holding. And I'm like, well, this guy's got a really long nose. Maybe that's offensive. But then that's, that's Rishi Sunak. So you go, okay. But then there's a squid, which apparently is another trope that I didn't know about. And it says Goldman Sachs, but he did actually work for Goldman Sachs. So I've been on this journey with this, but you look at it and go, yeah, it does seem, yeah, Guardian, pretty scum, left, far left is pretty anti-Semitic, why probably it is. But then you look into it more, and the guy's defended himself, Rosen, and said that it was all just a coincidence, and he, the guy did work for Goldman Sachs, he didn't know about some of the other, you know, sort of tropes. And then people will claim, well, it's unconscious bias, but I've always found that unconvincing. It kind of reminded me, He's sort of explaining it all away, how he came to think this. And he's going, yeah, I've messed up, but I didn't mean it to be anti-Semitic in any way. Kind of reminded me, I once, I once used, called someone Daffy. And I'd never said the word Daffy before or since. And they thought I said Gaddafi. And they turned out to be Libyan. I mean, what are the chances of that? Like, they, they had a strong <laughs> Scottish accent. I never thought they were, where, where they might be from. But they were Libyan, and they thought I'd done a sort of Libyan-based insult. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. And me trying to explain, they're like, no, no, I just said that. They couldn't believe that I didn't know, A, that they were Libyan, B, that Gaddafi was Libyan. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it. I couldn't have possibly made the insult because I didn't have the information. But in their mind, I'd I'd caught, and it was my my own explanation sounded implausible once they'd said that. So I wonder with this Rosen guy, even though he's saying Mm. I didn't realize any of these tropes, is it actually plausible, Toby? Yeah, I wondered if you sympathised with them a little bit, having been accused yourself of anti-Semitism because of your use of the phrase North London blob, which to many people would conjure up, you know, um, Jews. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I think I, I broadly sympathise with Martin Rosen. I should say that I used to employ Martin as a cartoonist at the Modern Review, the um, magazine I co-founded with Julie Birchall and Cosmo Lannisman and edited for four years from 91 to 95 and he did a great job for us um he used to do this um a lot of people called us at the time the the kind of uh, cute insult at the time was middle class wankers back when people like your friends in the north london blob could use the term middle class as an insult and i think now they've (laughs) reluctantly accepted that they are in fact fully paid up members um but we were called middle class wankers for you know wanking on about you know um Madonna and Doctor Who and Arnold Schwarzenegger and God knows what else. The, the the motif of the magazine was low culture for highbrows. So it was like, you know, long scholarly academic essays about people like Madonna and Schwarzenegger. Um, so um, Middle Class Wankers was a cartoon strip 
he did for the Modern Review. It was very funny. Uh, and um, I mean, I can see the case. I mean, you, you haven't quite made the case as strongly as you might have done as to why the cartoon was anti-Semitic. I mean, first of all, Richard Sharp, who was, of course, Jewish, had some exaggerated Jewish characteristics, like a big nose, rings under his eyes. He looked like he had slightly hooded eyes. So he, he looks like a caricature of a Jew uh, in the cartoon. And he's carrying a basket. And in the basket is a vampire squid. And there was, I think, a Nazi cartoon in which um, Jews are compared to squids because their tentacles are everywhere and they're controlling everything. Uh, and in addition, there was, as you say, what looked like a Rishi Sunak puppet in the basket, which suggests that, um, you know, as, as a member of the kind of uh, Jewish cabal ruling the world, Richard Sharp is a puppeteer and Rishi is his puppet. Uh, and there were also allegedly gold coins in the basket he's carrying too. I think Martin Rosen has pushed back and said, no, they're just supposed to be polyps, um, uh, not gold coins, and somehow connected to the squid. Uh, Martin Rosen, I think, has said that he hadn't realised that, you know, these were anti-Semitic tropes. And I think it does, you have to be quite uncharitable to imagine, you know, that, uh, or just to read these things as anti-Semitic tropes. So I think, he, I think, I think I'm, I am persuaded of his innocence. I mean, maybe as a cartoonist, he should be, you know, a little, a little bit more educated about, uh, particularly if he's working for The Guardian, which has, I imagine, quite a few anti-Semitic readers uh, amongst the kind of rump of the Corbynistas, um, as well as probably some people on staff. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Fraser Nelson wrote, I thought, a pretty good defense of him, um, saying that, you know, cartoonists are increasingly in the firing line now. He often has to um, look carefully at cartoons that appear in The Spectator. I and mean, I think if there is, so they won't, you know, provoke a kind of um, Twitter storm. Um, but um, I think the person at fault here is clearly his editor or the editor of The Guardian. I mean, someone should have looked at it, someone, you know, uh, and protected him by saying, no, look, if you, if you, if we publish this cartoon, you know, you're going to get into trouble, you'll be accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, that was, that was, I think, the shocking thing, that there was no editorial oversight. It was just published and then immediately withdrawn with no attempt really to defend him. Um, anyway, I hope he doesn't get into any more trouble. I mean, I like him. I like his work. And um, I don't think he is an anti-Semite. Oh, well, yeah, I had no idea you knew him, but I was just going off his remarks. I was going off how it would have probably happened. I was giving him benefit of the doubt, yeah, even though he works for the Hated Guardian, because like you say, yeah, there's just no way he would have known that and then done it. But then you get into, and, and by the way, some things are anti-Semitic, I'm sure, of course they are, but Josh will claim on our show headliners that the word globalist is anti-Semitic or globalism. And it's like, look, everything can't be anti-Semitic. We have to be able to talk about mm. globalism versus nationalism, so it can get a bit silly. Some of the things cultural in this... Marxism. That's another, isn't it? People right. say the term cultural Marxism is anti-Semitic. It's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Yeah, and it can get a bit ridiculous. So, whereas this may have had lots of tropes, that actually were as we've said. But then you get into this thing of well, he, it's unconscious bias, or it's unconscious, or he didn't realize, but he still as unconsciously sort of processed them somehow. Then you get into a strange question about should you be penalized for that? Like if you strangle someone when you're sleepwalking, you know, you're unconscious, you know, or if you or if you punch them or something, what are you are you culpable? Because, I, but I've never found this argument really stacks up. Like the idea of Danny Baker was unconsciously racist. That's why he posted that monkey thing about Archie or whatever it was. It's like, it just seems so unconvincing to me. I, I've never been able to quite articulate, but it's like, if it is unconscious, when then once it becomes, that once they, I don't know, they have to be so unconscious that once they post it, or in this case, draw the picture, they still don't see anything. But if it's that unconscious, is it really even no, I, worth mentioning? Uh, I'm a skeptic about unconscious bias and 
that's one of the reasons I'm skeptical about the value of unconscious bias training. Um, the concept, I think, is is originated with something called the implicit association test devised by a couple of Harvard psychologists, which has been roundly discredited in the psychological literature um, uh, for years. Um, and even, even the people who devised the implicit association test have disowned it. Um, and I think the reason for... Um, uh, the reason the concept uh, enjoys such currency uh, and the reason unconscious bias training is now so ubiquitous um, is because it's a convenient way for the left who want to claim that Britain is a deeply systemically racist society to um, dismiss all the survey evidence that, in fact, Britain is one of the least racist countries in the world. So if you actually ask people, you know, would you mind if... Um, uh, someone of a different race or ethnicity moved in next door to you? Would you mind if a member of your family, such as your son or your daughter, married someone of a different race or ethnicity? By those metrics, Britain is one of the least racist countries in the world. And there was a survey published just last week showing that we were actually less racist, according to those metrics, than Norway. Um, uh, and certainly in the bottom 5% and just kind of in a different ballpark to places like Jordan and Iran, uh, where, you know, something like 45, 50% of people answer yes to the would you object question, whereas in Britain, it's like less than 5%. So the way they dismiss all this evidence that Britain is one of the least racist countries in the world is to say, oh, yeah, but it's unconscious. And you can't really measure that other than by using this implicit association test, which has been completely discredited. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the reason people cling on to that concept. Uh, and it should, should be, I don't think people should give it the time of day. Yeah, and if it is unconscious, then why the, the sort of vicious attempts to get someone fired? It's like, well, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, it, that seems pretty harsh. So I, I find that to be nonsense. So we, we've actually defended a, a Guardian uh, cartoonist. Who'd have thought? So, and of course, the story comes off the back of Richard Sharp being fired, the uh, BBC boss. It was all to do with this loan, wasn't it? Uh, he helped Boris Johnson secure a guarantee on an £800,000 loan shortly before the Prime Minister recommended his appointment. I mean, I don't have many comments on the on that. Really, do you have any, anything particularly on that, Toby? Well, I suppose the 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 only point to make is that um, this supposedly disqualified him from being chairman of the BBC because uh, it meant that he had a conflict of interest. He 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 would he would in some way interfere um, uh, in the BBC's editorial independence to make the BBC less critical of Boris because Boris was um you know one of his um debtors um pretty ludicrous but but the focus the reason he had to go conflict of interest and also didn't disclose this supposedly during the interview when he was interviewed by a panel of experts um and he claimed that he asked the cabinet secretary richard case about this and so he sort of effectively disclosed it to him and therefore didn't think he needed to disclose it in the interview but that was an oversight he regretted that he resigned. But this this business about, you know, conflict of interest, I mean, it's far greater, I would have thought, in the case of Sue Gray. I mean, we could come on to talk about Sue Gray. But um, she, she whilst, whilst leading the investigation into the then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, about Partygate, uh, was also talking to Keir Starmer about becoming Keir Starmer's chief of staff. I mean, that's a conflict of interest. And she's supposedly, you know, the, the kind of civil services uh, ethics supremo you know uh, she, she's she's supposed to you know um <laughs> she's policing conflicts of interest across the service um uh she she's supposedly looking into whether boris's behavior was ethical and at the same time she couldn't be guiltier of a conflict of interest i said this on headliners last night simon evans was far too generous to it 
Yeah, so the Telegraph headline is Sue Gray and Partygate team when Starmer Talks began. And as you say, it comically says her role included giving advice on public appointments, including potential conflicts of interest. I mean, it can't get more <laughs> absurd. And, um, and so now she's, there's going to be this cooling off period of a year, potentially two years before she's allowed to actually take the job. And, and, and senior conservatives have said it. Now emerges Sue Gray may have been conniving with Labour during the crucial period she had responsibility for propriety and ethics. One could say spying almost. <laughs> I mean, what, how would you describe it? It's, it is completely absurd. We all know the, the civil service blob and Labour we know this anyway, but, but for it to come out, you know, for it to be so blatant. I, I know the last thing I'd say on it as well, Toby, is that it's got a sort of Hunter Biden laptop quality that it comes out now. They got their man, you know, in the, in the Hunter Biden laptop, they got the election won. Then much later, oh, yeah, by the way, that was real. That would have ended the election for Joe Biden potentially, but it was real. Sorry, a bit late. In this case, we got rid of Boris. Oh, yeah, by the way, the person leading the investigation was uh, was was uh, working with Starmer Soz, right? Yeah, it's it's what's I think it's revealing of a kind of deep seated hypocrisy um, amongst senior officials, um, which is on the one hand, you know, um, they um, pretend that Whitehall is just any other workplace and the same codes of conduct that um, apply to other workplaces should apply to Whitehall, which is why bullying is um, so unacceptable. Um, but at the same time, they're not any other workplace. They are, in fact, you know, one of the seats of Whitehall, is one of the seats of power. And civil servants, particularly senior civil servants, are becoming increasingly politically active. Uh, and in politics, you know, the usual workplace rules about ethical conduct don't quite apply, you know, because it's all about power. And of course, politicians have to cut corners and sometimes behave unethically if they're going to be effective. Um, uh, yet they don't want to accept that because it's part of not accepting that they are powerful. It goes back to your friends in the North London blob pretending that they are, you know, these freedom fighters fighting the evil empire and not actually the people in charge. Ditto with Sue Gray. She thinks of herself as this kind of ethical cop policing Whitehall, making sure everybody behaves uh, properly, no one breaks the rules, and at the same time breaks the rules herself because she's power-seeking, and that's what power-seeking people do. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I totally agree. And as I say, we covered it on headliners. Simon Evans, for some reason, was really generous about it, but I think it, he was like, well, they all meet each other. You know, it's, it's, all it's like, well, no, that's not really sufficient explanation for this, is it? So I think it is very bad. What do you think will happen to Sue Gray? Well, interestingly, the 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 I'm, I'm, I expect she'll be completely fine and um, will go on to become Keir Starmer's chief of staff. I mean, you know, because she and her colleagues are the people in power. So who's going to punish her? Um, but um, I may be wrong about that. But uh, did you see that Anthony Selden, who's the lead author of the most recent biography, very critical biography of Boris Johnson, um, has um, has called for Simon Case, um, the notional head or the head of the civil service, um, uh, to be fired because um, he thinks the civil service is being um, uh, needlessly attacked and besmirched and that Simon Case should should have done more to stand up for the reputation of the civil service. It's like because Simon Case, because he hasn't entirely sided with the blob, um, is now being attacked by the blob. Incidentally, quick story, quick sidebar about Anthony Selden. Anthony Selden used to be, I'd say, a friend. And um, when the blob first came to for me in 2018, when I was properly cancelled, um, <laughs> when I lost five positions, Nick, uh, he defended me. 
which was fantastic. He was one of the few kind of members of the establishment to actually stand up for me and defend me. And he defended me on Twitter. Um, and I thought, well, and, and, and in, he wrote a piece, I think, for, for, for CapEx defending me too. Um, so that was fantastic. You know, one of the few people, one of my few friends to actually defend me. Fraser Nelson was another. Um, but um, a week later, um, he then withdrew his defence and said, "I was wrong to defend Toby Young. Now that I've now that I've reviewed some of the things he's written, dating back to, you know, over thirty-one years ago, um, uh, I've changed my mind." And that was far worse than him just keeping quiet. I mean, I'd have much preferred him to have said nothing than to have defended me and then to have withdrawn his defence. That was devastating. And also, I, so so yeah, he's dead to me. That is actually, you're right. The only thing worse than throwing you under the bus is sort of saving you from the bus, then throwing you under the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely horrific. Wow. Even his friends are disowning him now. That was the sort of conclusion he had to to draw. That is disgusting. Um, Well, I'm sorry about that, Toby. Well, yeah, that's that's too great, Delwich. Staying on British politics, let's have a quick look at Jess Phillips. It's not really a major story, but there was this very strange thing where she, she, she got caught out in a lie where she had she'd claimed two things simultaneously. So she said, I bought my first home at 20, thanks to Labour government. It changed my life and my children's fortune. My son is 18, and the thought he would have the same chances for the birds. Young people deserve hope and a home. Okay. But then she'd also said in, in an article, uh, um, well, it was an article about her that said, when Jess Phillips was pregnant with her first son, she was 22 and living with her now husband, Tom, and five other men in what she describes affectionately as a squat. At the time, she was working as a barmaid, and Tom was working night shifts on the lifts, servicing and repairing elevators. So she it's one of those profile pieces where she said it, and they're just translating it. So so she had said that she was living in a squat. So which one is it, Toby? This is sort of Schrodinger's Phillips. <laughs> I think what immediately struck me about this story is that she's trying to um, make an argument for voting Labour by saying the the um, policies of previous Labour governments helped me as a young person. You know, I was able to take advantage of an opportunity which I wouldn't have had had it not been for the Labour Party uh, putting policies in place that helped working class people like me. It's quite a common argument made um, by supporters of the Labour Party, by supporters of the Democrats in the United States. And Joe Biden made a very similar argument in the primary contest to become the Democratic presidential nominee in the 1988 presidential campaign, um, presidential race. Um, So in September 87, I've looked it up. I remember this because I was in America studying at the time. So this was a big scandal. Um, He made this speech talking about how much he had benefited from the welfare policies put in place by the Democrats. And in particular, I think um, uh, uh, FDR. Uh, the New Deal, etc. Um, and uh, 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 and it turned out that he'd plagiarised the speech from Neil Kinnock, who'd made the same speech at a Labour Party conference or something the previous year. Uh, and when it emerged that he'd plagiarised, I lied about um, uh, the way in which he'd benefited, or at least you know it, it seemed as though it, it seemed as though he might be lying because he'd just taken he he just lifted you know Kinnock's examples, you know. F- f- from his speech and just inserted them into his. So uh, anyway, that did for his presidential campaign. And that, that, that's why in the end, he wasn't the, um, uh, uh, he was beaten. Um, I guess it was by um, Dukakis uh, to become the, um, uh, the the Democratic presidential candidate in 
in eighty in 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 eighty eight, um, and uh, yeah, so shockingly, you know, uh, she seems to have made the same mistake. I mean, she hasn't plagiarized someone else's speech. It's a kind of familiar trope, um, but uh, she she's she she seemingly um, well. She can't be telling the truth on both occasions. She she's making something up, and it's like well, it sort of it does it does sort of tell you, you know, something about um, just how effective these kind of welfare policies are. If these people who are supposedly you know pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, born to working class families, they can't actually think of any real examples of Labour Party policies that have helped them, that have provided them with opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have had, being from disadvantaged backgrounds. So they have to invent them. It's like you know. It's not. A, it's a kind of a, a bit of an indictment of your party if you can't think of any actual examples. You have to actually invent them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I thought you've, you've summarised that. Well, I don't really have any further comments other than it's Jess Phillips going full Jess Phillips. Um, and I, I thought we could move on to this spiked Andrew Bridgen article. You, do you want to move on to that? It's, sure, uh, yeah. I, I can explain it. For the, for the listener, I'm sure you may have seen it if you've been on Twitter. And they, it's Fraser Myers, who I do know, and he's a nice guy. But they've called it the delusions of Andrew Bridgen, and and the subheading is conspiratorial thinking corrodes reason, democracy, and humanism, and it's a very very harsh attack on Bridgen, and they use the term. Well, shall I just say first, I actually ha- had a very mild critique of Bridgen, which I got in a lot of trouble for on the Daily Skeptic, when I said, it was it ideal to quote someone comparing the vaccine harms to the Holocaust when we're trying to sort of win this thing. Because if you use that kind of language, you give an easy win to idiots like Hancock and, and and the establishment like Sunak. And my case was very simply, I am on, I'm on his side. I agree the vaccine harms need to be raised. Perhaps not the ideal way to do it. That was my only point. And as you know, Toby, when you've got to hit sort of article deadlines or produce a certain amount of articles, you, you just you write things and some of them people don't like. And some people didn't like that Daily Skeptic. But then I subsequently had Andrew Bridgen on my other podcast, The Current Thing, and got on really well, and I, I, I liked him, and I've been sort of defending him broadly. Now, people are annoyed that I even made that mild critique of him, but this is a much more scathing critique from Fraser Myers. They use the term anti-vax or anti-vaxxer six times in the article, I checked, and Tom Slater doubled down, editor of Spike, on Twitter calling anti-vaxxers snowflakes because they couldn't take the criticism of bridging um, I don't have the exact tweet, but I can get it. But he, he called them snowflakes and he called them anti-vaxxers. And this just seems a surprising a surprising take by Spike. I mean, not surprising in a sense, because they've been very pro-vax since the start. And it's okay to make the point that uh, perhaps Bridgen, I, mean, I, I think Bridgen perhaps goes on some shows that he maybe shouldn't and et cetera, et cetera. He, he, you can get down a conspiracy rabbit hole, but then again, he's just been expelled from the party. He is doing an important thing. Did Spike get it right here, Toby? Well, I too um, know Fraser Myers. I'm a fan of Fraser Myers's. Um, and like you, I, um, I have my reservations about um, Andrew Bridgen. I think it's courageous of him to raise vaccine harms to try and... Um, raise that issue, increase its salience in the House of Commons. And he's been, I think, um, unfairly punished for that. Um, but I also think that that that, that he does go too far. Um, uh, clearly, um, his his um, uh, Holocaust analogy was, was very unwise and unhelpful. And I think it's very important not to go too far 
when talking about vaccine harms, um, not to exaggerate the harms themselves, not to misinterpret the data showing um, that uh, link linking um, the vaccine rollout to excess deaths in different countries and trying to discern a pattern there when it's actually pretty hard to discern a pattern in that data. Um, and also claiming, as he has claimed, um, uh, that, uh, that, that, that the vaccine rollout um, is linked to uh, a conspiracy um, uh, uh, involving a lot of premeditation and planning and an exaggeration of the risks posed by COVID-19 and so on and so forth. You know I'm on team cock-up not team conspiracy. Um, and I think that, that the difficulty with um, inflating the claims you make about just how harmful the vaccines are, linking those harms to a broader conspiracy, um, is is that it discredits, you know, the, the, the lockdown sceptic and vaccine sceptic point of view. Um, uh, and it makes it easier um, for people like Matt Hancock to dismiss legitimate criticisms of um, of his tenure as health secretary and of the government's introduction of vaccine mandates and vaccine passports so I think if you are if you are in that if you are on on a, on 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 that on that particular side if you are a lockdown skeptic if you're hoping that that kind of thing is not going to happen again uh, in response to another pandemic it's really important to get all your facts right to not inflate and exaggerate the claims you're making because that just enables the other side to discredit you and 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 your allies so um i can see where fraser mars is coming from it was a pretty hard hitting um piece um but um i think broadly speaking i agreed with it well i have to represent team james here toby because i'll be screaming at the uh, wireless because um I've been called seven eighth team James, so I have to. I'll go with my seventh eighth for a second here and say, look, Fraser Myers says he claimed that the vaccines were the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust, and you've just said as well he made that analogy. And Tom Slater says the same in his tweet, but actually, he was only quoting somebody. He said, as one consultant cardiologist said to me, this is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Now, obviously, he's agreeing with the statement. But he is quoting someone. So that was the thing that lots of people on Twitter were pointing out. Whether you think that's materially different or not, I don't know. But they're getting heavily ratioed spiked every time they comment on this. And Tom Slater, I found a tweet, said, the anti-vaxxers talk a big game about free speech, but they really are the biggest snowflakes out there. We run one piece criticizing their boy Bridgen, who has compared the vaccine rollout to the Holocaust, FFS. He hasn't exactly, but he can't, I see what he means. And they've been crying as nonstop for 24 hours. Pathetic. But I think people are, and I certainly got attacked when I did even a very mild critique, but I, I've come to be more sympathetic to that position because it is, he was mistreated by the party. He has been expelled for raising this, which spiked to using phrases like anti-vaxxers, which is a very much a sort of establishment term. They could say, just as easy as say vaccine skeptics, you know, if they wanted to be, they could run just as harsh a piece and at least say vaccine skeptics. And is it really the person they want to be attacking? Because every magazine and paper has an editorial stance. So spiked, yes, it's free speech, but they can choose, can't they, whether to really hammer Bridgen or whether they, they say, okay, Bridgen's been through a lot. The vaccine skeptics have been attacked. They wanted to have COVID passports and all these very non-spiked ideas. So really, they could say something like, we're broadly sympathetic to Andrew Bridgen. Perhaps he goes too far, which is 
really what I said, but but they've gone much more sort of, I mean, they just sound like any sort of newspaper at the height of COVID, don't they? Well, I think Spiked um, have consistently um, maintained a um, sceptical position about the lockdowns. Maybe they weren't as, as early as me, but um, I think they were from a pretty pretty early date were lockdown skeptics and i think if you if you are in that camp um then um being lumped together with um uh other other people who share that point of view but also express other slightly crackpot points of view can be frustrating uh, i mean i think you know it's a perennial problem for um uh for want of a better word the kind of um uh uh, regimes critics I mean whatever you kind of single out for criticism let, let, let's take um, 15 minute cities um, I think it's important if we're going to win that particular argument not to mischaracterize what 15 minute cities are not to claim that actually the plan is to effectively lock us into neighborhoods um, uh, within cities and actually prevent us from leaving, leaving our neighbourhoods or entering other neighbourhoods. It's essentially, you know, um, a draconian traffic calming measure. It's not a kind of, um, it's not a type of lockdown. And by exaggerating that, I think you do risk discrediting um, the cause you're trying to help. And I also think that um, there's a problem with kind of policing boundaries within your kind of movement. You know, if you're if you are in in a genuine oppositional countercultural movement, if you're protesting against 15 minute cities or lockdowns or the mRNA vaccines, um, you have to be quite careful, I think, about policing your boundaries and making sure various crackpots don't make common cause with you and come on your demonstrations because that just makes it so easy for defenders of the status quo of the narrative of the regime to discredit their opponents um but it's tricky because you don't want to be seen to be trying to you know suppress the free speech or the freedom of association or the freedom of assembly of other people i mean you can't really it's hard to kind of stop people turning up to a protest because they agree with you about this issue, even though you don't agree with them about a lot of other issues. Um, but it is, I think, a perennial problem, the lack of kind of discipline within the kind of, you know, anti-woke, anti-authoritarian movement. Um, uh, it, it attracts all sorts and um, that can be problematic. It's yeah, hard to know and, how to and I spoke about that need for discipline in my article, although, like I say, I've slightly changed my mind, but but, but even even tactically, spiked is a strange move because the establishment people are not going to suddenly like spiked. They all think spiked is trash, so they're not going to suddenly go. I tell you what, spiked has taken a principled stance on Andrew Bridge, and so we're going to reevaluate spiked and actually see they might be worthwhile. They, they hate spiked, so it's a strange. And all spiked's done is alienate a, a, a proportion of their readership. And, and and you might say, well, they just believe in free speech. They have their opinions. They're not trying to stay in any particular box and and they should be allowed to do it and of course they should be allowed to do it it's up to them i'm just saying it's quite odd in a way because they could have just not written it well, i think I, I wouldn't have thought it was I, I wouldn't have thought it was kind of you know um strategic in that sense they weren't trying to ingratiate themselves with members of the establishment i mean as you say they know that um they're always going to be hated by the establishment um uh, rather i would have thought it's it's consistent with with spike's kind of overall position isn't it which is that spiked likes to think of itself as kind of rational you know um uh reasonable on the kind of less loopy wing 
of the kind of opposition movement. And so you can understand their frustration at being lumped together with people like Andrew Bridgen. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that it was tactical. I was just suggesting if was one was to even look at it tactically and think about one's readership, one might say, should we even publish this Bridgen piece? Because what's it going to achieve? It's going to attack Bridgen, who's, who's vulnerable at the moment. It's going to attack a lot of people on the same side. But if they're really saying, we don't want anything to do with you people who are vaccine skeptics, then then fine. But I think they've probably alienated a lot of a lot of reasonable, nice people. But then again, then again, of course, you do get the purity nutcases on our side, the purity police, I've started calling them, who nothing is extreme enough for, and you're all scum because you weren't perfect on everything. So yeah, I mean, even though I probably was, and I was anti-lockdown the whole time. But I've been slightly red-pilled on this issue by... Um, my weekly conversations with James Tellingpole, in which he's getting more and more unreasonable and belligerent. He yesterday described me as part of the problem. Um, <laughs> which he just, as far as he's concerned, I'm indistinguishable from Matt Hancock, I think. That's uh, next week's uh, intro sorted, though. Part of the problem. <laughs> just going to note that down. Um, so, yeah, well, look, yeah, one can go too far with the purity police. I, yeah, we're all at slightly different positions on the scale, but all right, well, maybe we've dealt with that. But I think I'm sort of slightly against the article. You're in favor of it. The comments will agree with me, though, so that's all good. <laughs> um, do you want to, before we move on to American stuff, quickly do our first ad, Toby? Yes. So we've got a, a brand new sponsor. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, it's, 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 it's someone called. Um, the stack assistant. Um, so the Bank of England tells us that we should accept we're poorer. But why? The government blew 400 billion on counterproductive COVID countermeasures. And that huge overspend was dumped on us after 20 years of further fiscal incontinence, with the state spending billions more than it raises every year. Now the grown-ups in the real world face 16% trueflation, while the teenagers in the Treasury max out ever more credit cards, making the national debt ever more unpayable. If inflation is harmless, then wouldn't it be simpler and fairer for the state to file their labyrinthine tax code in the same bin as their pandemic preparedness plans and print all the money it needs? But how can adding more debt or printing more pictures of a monarch create real wealth across an economy? And why does a pound of sterling silver now cost £200 sterling? What's gone wrong with our money? For a better answer than accept your poorer, why not join the growing number of state money sceptics who realise that Bitcoin fixes this? But stacking your first stats, the subunits of Bitcoin, can be intimidating. As the stack assistant, we love talking Bitcoin. So we're offering Weekly Skeptic listeners a free Zoom call to help you get off zero. If you're ready to take the plunge or to set up secure self-custody, email thestackassistant at pm.me. That's thestackassistant, all one word, at pm.me. All right. Um, I'm just trying to eat a sandwich. This may not go very well. I don't know if this is too obnoxious for you, Toby, but basically what's been happening is the podcast has been ruining my football game. And I had a set meal that I always ate three hours before football. And last week, we pushed the podcast a day back because you were in Canada. And I played way better. I scored a right foot volley. I'm left footed. The first goal of the match, we were up against a stronger team with loads of massive players who are good and physically massive. It was a passing move. Cross, first time cross. Then I hit a first time right foot volley. 
into the far corner and people couldn't believe it was one of those moments where no one knew I had it in me. They were like, what was that? And I, you know, it was just a great moment. And I scored another goal later with my right foot. And it was six all because they had such a good team. It was a very brutal battle. I got one ball in the eye. I blocked a shot with my stomach, which was like getting punched by Tyson Fury in the gut. It was, it was horrendous. But it was a, it was a great six all battle. What I realized is I played so much better. And I thought, hang on, it's because we didn't do the podcast on Tuesday. I could eat three hours in advance and I could focus my entire energy on the football. So what I'm doing is going to try and eat my sandwich now. So it's okay for the football, but it might not work because we're doing a podcast. So if it's too obnoxious, let me know, either Toby or listeners. But um, do you want to move on to Crowder's divorce, Toby? Which uh, you yeah, didn't follow I, that much. I, I, I can explain it though. I, I didn't. Yeah, you explain it. Okay. Well, Crowder, Stephen Crowder, massive in the US. We've covered him before because he had that 50 million contract offer from Daily Wire, which he complained about. And um, I wrote an article actually much more on the Daily Wire side. And I got attacked by the aforementioned purity police for that because they were like, no, Crowder's like a legend. And I was thinking, no, Crowder's a bit of a dick. He's a dick to all his staff. Everything you hear about him suggests he's a weird dickhead, frankly. And so that was my stance. That wasn't my stance about the thing. I was looking at it rationally, but that was like also in my mind. But now people pretty much agree with me because he's because of this video that's come out. And actually on this, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to him. But um. But a video has come out of him arguing with his wife. So first he announced that he was divorced because too many people are finding out about it. So he announced he was getting divorced. And there was criticism because he's a conservative Christian and you're not supposed to get divorced. There's a fairly uncharitable criticism of that. And I actually mentioned it on my other upcoming podcast, The Current Thing, with Jamie Franklin, who's a vicar. And I was quite, um, I mentioned it quite sympathetically. That was before the video came out, before everyone tweets me. So now there's a video that's come out, which seems to possibly, arguably have been leaked perhaps by his wife to get back at the fact he said look I'm going through this divorce I married the wrong person lo and behold this video comes out because he wasn't supposed to talk about the divorce but he said I'm I'm gonna have to this video comes out on the ring camera which is that doorbell system he's arguing with his wife it's a bizarre argument one of these weird marital arguments they seem to only have one car despite him being rich enough to turn down a 50 million dollar (laughs) contract They've got one car and and she he's going, well, I'm trapped. I'm trapped in the house. If you leave, like, what am I, you, you don't understand how trapped I am. And she's like, honey, I love you. Probably knowing it's on video and she's going to release it later, knowing what women are like. So <laughs> delete that. Um, I love you, but you, you, you're being abusive. And he's like, watch it, watch it. He keeps saying, watch it, which is weird. And um, he wants to, he's trapped in the house. He's saying, do your wifely duties, feed the dog this medicine, even though you're allergic to it, wear gloves and do what a wife would do. And don't be leaving the house because what am I supposed to do? He seemed like he can have a child to me. Like, I'm trapped in the house. She's like, get an Uber. Why is he trapped in the house? Because she's going to take the one car to do chores. She's going to take the one car. It's not because someone has to look after the sick dog. No. It's not her. And she's she's going, get an Uber. And he's going, you don't understand how trapped I am. It's like, get a car. (laughs) I mean, what the? Like, you're rich. Bicycle. (laughs) Yeah, it's insanity. I mean, yeah, go on one of Toby's little bikes that he goes on. Um, Oh, they don't don't have those, they're like a, a London thing. But, um, Anyway, so this has all been kicking off. People have been very scathing about it. And he did admit, based on witness testimony, Crowder got even angrier and yelled, I will F you up, which is not in the video, but it's something apparently he's admitted. It's not ideal. I don't know, but you didn't really follow it, Toby. But um, any take on, on all this? And then, Well, I, I've just got a, one of those ring doorbells. And I'm now regretting it <laughs> because not only, I, I, first of all, I, I felt slightly ripped off because um, the initial cost was something like uh, 160 pounds, which seems reasonable. Um, and, and, and it, you know, it's quite easy to set up. 
works quite well. Um, you get a little notification every time someone's at your door and you can speak to them. So, you know, if you're being burgled, you're out of the country, you can shout at them and say, I'm watching you um, uh, or pretend that you're in the house. Uh, say, yes, yes. Are you from are you from Amazon? Anyway, um, uh, but uh, after having made the initial outlay, you then discover that in order in order to record what's happened, like you get the first month for free. So like you can play stuff back from days before if you want to. Um, but after the first month, you then have to subscribe to this kind of recording service, which costs £35 a year uh, in order to be able to play stuff back for the past month. Um, but uh, I've just signed up to that. And I now, I'm now regretting it because I'm thinking if I have a, a bitter row with my wife about we're a one car family too, you know, um, though, as you say, I do have the funny little bike so I can escape on them. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got no comment beyond that. I don't really know Stephen Crowder and, uh, wouldn't like to comment on, on his divorce. Yeah. Fair enough. It's a bit gospy to comment on the actual divorce. I'm surprised you have a ring doorbell, Toby, given that you live in a shed. I mean, is there anything to protect in there? <laughs> I mean, that's a strange well, system, uh, like it must be the, worth the, more the than shed. the shed. <laughs> The shed's in the garden. Um, the ring doorbell is on the house. Ah, just to clarify, did you get a mini one for the shed? Um, well, yeah, there's, there's more crowd of stuff that I thought you might find amusing. That This guy, Dave Landau, has been out there complaining about, with some reason, his contract. There was very strange things in his contract with Stephen Crowder where he had to go back home if he was five minutes late or and he wanted him to move state even though he wasn't like paid that much and things like this. And it seemed to be a case of sort of the real talent being mistreated by someone with more clout. I mean, hard, hard for you to relate to that, Toby. But um, but basically, <laughs> sorry about that one. The, um, the point is, there was this no talk light. So there was a sort of light that popped up when Dave Lando was not supposed to talk. He's supposed to let Crowder always have the last word. I thought that'd be hilarious. I mean, we, we bring that in on this podcast. I mean, you just forced me to have a no talk light. Isn't that kind of mental? This light would flash up and it's like, now he has to go silent. Isn't that a bit dysfunctional? That is, that's a bit over-controlling yeah and it, what's the satisfaction in getting the last word if the fact that you have to get the last word is written into the contract i mean sure, 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 you, you, the reason you get some satisfaction from having the last word is because it's like you know you've owned the other person um but yeah it sounds like yeah that sounds pretty pretty extreme i, I i'm not going to insert that in your contract nick don't worry oh thank you my goal is to get <laughs> rich enough to act like crowder and just have all these weird <laughs> conditions on everyone and just be totally mental. He's obviously gone a bit mental. I mean, good, good luck to him. Sorry, Stephen, I don't know you. Sorry for calling you mental and a dick. I actually don't know that. If those things are true, they're just my perception. I could be wrong. Could be. I mean, the other thing he did, the reason I said it, he, he recorded phone calls with Jeremy Boring, and he complained about a $50 million contract and released people's phone calls. It's, it's like, nah, come on, bro. Come on. But anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Team James can let me know. Did you see this Tucker Carlson video, Toby? Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. Um, this is the um, his kind of uh, post departure video. Yeah, yeah. And tell should, us w- w- what's what's in that. I will tell you, and I should also say I forgot to say this is unprofessional me. I was eating my blooming sandwich. I should have said I'm thinking about making this a whole new section called Across the Pond or Pond Life. Across the Pond Life could be a good pun. I don't know something like that because it was of American stuff. I just wanted to flag that for listeners. It could be a new section. Didn't really need to. Pond, but- pond scum. Pond scum, yeah. Um, it's about our American cousins. Welcome to Pond scum. So, so basically, because we have we do cover all these American things, but they're not sort of massive stories in themselves necessarily. We're covering them as little stories. So, Tucker Carlson, we covered obviously that he got sacked, which was a massive story. But he's come out and done this video on Twitter, 
And depending on which measure you use, whether you use the Constantine measure or the Toby measure, it's got 79.5 million views on that little bit on the right. But on that little bit on the left, it's got 23.6. So I don't know which one it is because they're both on the same tweet. And I don't, I've never really understood that. But um, massive amount of views. And it's just Tucker in what looks like a sort of cabin coming out and saying that America you know, is full of kind and decent people, hilarious people, actually. It's the majority of the population, even now. And he goes, um, it's funny how stupid most of the debates you see on television are. And he goes, but the undeniably big topics get virtually no discussion at all. War, civil liberties, emerging, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, natural resources are all not permitted in U.S. media as, as talking points. And he says the political parties and their donors actively collude and shut down any conversation. And the United States looks much like a one-party state. Our current orthodoxies, direct quote, won't last. They're brain dead. Nobody actually believes them. Hardly anyone's life is improved by them. This moment is too inherently ridiculous to continue. And he also says, very Peterson-esque, when honest people say what's true calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. And he says there are not many places left telling the truth in America, but, but there are some, and that's good enough. And he said, see you soon. So it's like, it was just, and it's just epic video, a huge number of views, kind of suggesting that the power is with Tucker, not with Fox. You cannot keep Tucker down. And there's even been a leaked video now as part of the, presumably the kind of hit campaign that all emerged against Tucker, where he slams the Fox Nation website. And he's just on a phone going, it's just, it doesn't work at all. I mean, I don't understand it. Why would they make it so bad? I, I Actually, I don't get it. And it's like, and we're all, I'm watching it going, well, alleged, like, he's absolutely right. Why is the website so shit? He's like, we're, we're just working like animals to make this content. And and the website's so bad. It, and so I'm totally with Tucker. But have you followed any of this, Toby? Yeah, well, it sounds like, um, it sounds like he, he's sort of teasing us as to what his next move is going to be. But it, from from the way you've described it, it sounds like he's um, he may well be thinking about um, you know a a political future. Uh, maybe he's going to run for Congress or one of the Senate seats, um, or maybe even you know a presidential run is in his future, and he could could become a vice presidential candidate. Um, so yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, by the way, what we've been talking about, we talked about Tucker last week. Um, I forgot to mention that um, Tucker actually threw a party for me. In Washington, in um, I think it was in two thousand and two. So when the when 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 my book How to Lose Friends and Alienate People about my misadventures in Manhattan um, was published in the U.S., which was in two thousand and two, um, Tucker was then working at a magazine called the Weekly Standard, and I don't think had a television career, or maybe his television career, I think was was in its infancy in the foothills. Um, but uh, yeah, he 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 co-hosted a party for me uh, with a guy called David Bass at a bar in Washington. And he actually did show up, which I suppose you have to, if you're the host, but uh, so yeah, I should have, I should have, I should have, it's like big name drop opportunity. I just forgot to, to drop it. So there you are. I know Tucker well, he's an intimate friend of mine. He once hosted a party for me in Washington. That's insane. I'm looking forward to talking about someone that you don't have a personal anecdote about. <laughs> you actually know everyone, Toby. What was he like? Did you actually meet him? Yeah, he was very personable, um, uh, charming, um, had read my book and um, praised it effusively. I mean, uh, I, I knew I knew he'd actually read it and wasn't pretending because he said he said it was really good and he'd really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, no, I was I was very impressed. I, I but I can't claim to have any sort of relationship with him beyond that. And when you got into discussion, did he say, "I'm not an intellectual; I'm a talk show host"? And did he look at you strangely, <laughs> like really concentrating, but like a dog? 
It was more of a, more of an intellectual back then, actually. Uh, okay. He wrote these kind of quite thoughtful political pieces for uh, the Weekly Skeptic, and I wouldn't have thought to find himself as a broadcaster. But yeah, so yeah, big fan of Tucker. Excited to see what he does next. Well, he just plays down his own intelligence, you know. So I, I use that trick sometimes too. But um, by the way, by the way, um, that was that your Tucker impression is is fantastic, almost as good as your Jordan Peterson impression. So I think at some point in the not too distant future, we have to have you know a segment in which Tucker Carlson interviews jordan peterson um i think you could really pull that off you know what thanks toby i stopped doing the uh, jordan peterson impression when we started getting jordan peterson actually on the show that was why i stopped it out of disrespect and apparently he's going to come back next week or he might only make it for the live show we are, we're not sure right but he might be at the live yeah, show i think i think, I think yeah i think maybe at the live show tucker carlson will appear and interview dr peterson <laughs> which would be Unbelievable, um, but that's, that's a lot uh, of pressure but, for, but, for them. But we, we, we but we, <laughs> they can handle it. They're professionals. They've been in show business a long time. Um, but uh, 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 we should say that there are actually only thirty-seven. Last time I checked, thirty-seven tickets left to sell for our um, live weekly skeptic event. It's going to be at the Emmanuel Centre on May the twentieth, which is two weeks on Saturday. Um, it's coming up. Not much time left to buy tickets. Only thirty-seven left. They're only twenty-five quid. So if you want to see Nick and I and Will Jones and Doctor Peterson and Tucker Carlson live on stage um, at the Emmanuel Centre, it'll be a two-hour show, um, half an hour Q and A. Lots of opportunities to uh, you, you. You can call me a cuck. You can you can tell me that uh, it's all a conspiracy. You can defend Andrew Bridgen. Uh, say what you like in the Q and A. It'll be a great occasion. It'll be seven thirty to nine thirty. Emmanuel Centre, May the twentieth. Thirty-seven tickets left. So if you want a ticket, go to eventbrite. Is it com? I think it is eventbrite.com and um, search for Weekly Skeptic Live, and you'll find the few remaining tickets, only 25 quid. Yeah, well, you told me off for saying eventbrite.com, but it certainly works anyway. So, Does it? Oh, is it, is it eventbrite.co.uk? Well, no, I think it's, it's .com. I mean, certainly eventbrite.com works. I'm looking at it right now, but you, you panicked that it was .co.uk. But anyway, I'm sure they'll find it. Um, I think there's, I actually think both work, to be honest. I think. Yeah, um, I think they do both work. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, um, it was, and, it was and a false, 30, false, false alarm on my part. <laughs> there are 37, but there are arguably only 35 because there's a weird ambiguousness about two tickets, which seems is a kind of glitch. So, we, so you know, definitely get your tickets. We barely promoted it and it's still sold out. We haven't promoted it that much, have we? I mean, I, I stopped promoting no. on Twitter after you got attacked about lockdown files and I was a bit scared. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, so I'm, but it's done well anyway. So, yeah, 37 slash 35 tickets left. And um, just lastly on Tucker, I think I had one more thing to say about it. But oh, yeah. Is he really – you think it's that he's launching his political career and people have talked about him as president or vice president. I took it to mean he's going to do his own thing where he talks to uh, to real people. You know, he has a, a separate thing from the system and that he's he's saying we can't talk about anything on mainstream TV, but he's going to do his own broadcast of some sort. That's what I took it to mean. But maybe. Maybe. I, I could be wrong. But anyway, it was a great statement. I, I, Go on. Maybe maybe it is a podcast, you know. Um, I mean, given that Joe Joe Rogan, um, uh, well, he got over a hundred million dollars, didn't he, from um, Spotify to do his podcast for Spotify? So, um, you know, Tucker could do worse than than creating a podcast and uh, sticking it on Spotify. I imagine he could get maybe not quite that much, but a, something in that region. Yeah. Um, you're, you're now eating a sandwich, so maybe I should carry on talking. Well, so no, it's not really going to work. Freak out, our listeners. If I don't do it, I'll play a poor football game. And I was thinking, why should I sacrifice my football 
I have to work around everyone else's schedules. You're in Canada. It's like, yeah, but I'm a I'm a semi professional footballer here. I think we might get we might get quite a few comments in the reviews next week saying, "Great show, guys!" But don't eat sandwiches during the show. Yeah, I mean, people have it. explained to me that, that that podcasting is a very intimate medium. People mainly listen to it on headphones. That's why they care about sound quality. Um, you know, it's like you're you're in a kind of little tiny room with these two people or one other person and uh, they're whispering in your ear and uh, i think <laughs> eating a sandwich uh, might not go down too well but we'll see you're in an intimate room with two people and a sandwich well i muted it when i was doing it but well, what's what's the other okay. solution toby we could talk about it off, off off air but i don't know what's the solution to you know keep my podcast going and my football game well you could have a you could you could um eat before we start recording the podcast what i figured out though is that doesn't work as well i used to eat three hours before the exact same meal every time which is this particular sandwich and a snickers bar and it works perfectly and everything else is flawed and everything else is too early or too late but anyway maybe 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 it was just coincidentally you happened to score a couple of worldies in the last match and um actually it's nothing to do with when you eat i think it's the meal lucky but i also think it's the focus (laughs) because instead of focusing on the podcast, i just focus on the football all day Right. So, um, okay. should we do one more American story? It's kind of American, is it? Because it's about Vice. Vice is now going bankrupt, and it's it was once valued at five point seven billion in twenty seventeen. Much like Disney, they should have cashed in. And it's so funny because, of course, Gavin McInnes co-founded it. We're now in a very different world. I mean, they're now ultra left. They did a hit piece on Andrew Tate. He's threatening to release the documentary that he did on them. He says he says he's also filmed them. And if he gets enough likes, he's going to retweet, uh, release it, he claimed. And it's so funny because I read the Guardian article and they said it rose to prominence alongside its provocative co-founder, Shane Smith, who built his media empire from a single Canadian magazine. And then it goes full Guardian. One of Vice's other co-founders, Gavin McInnes, is now better known as the founder of the Proud Boys, a far-right group whose leaders are now facing seditious conspiracy charges for their actions during the January 6th insurrection in Washington. I mean, they get that in there, but... (laughs) Gavin McInnes, you know, he's an innovative guy. He's a sort of a genius, really. He founds Vice because the culture was kind of like it was. He invented. He's thought to uh, to be the godfather of hipster culture, so he's into fashion and things like that. But then he obviously moved away from that and realized, like, okay, much like you realized, but in a sort of more extreme way than you, that the counterculture has moved. Because I see you like that as someone who used to be a punk, but then became a conservative. Because that's the counterculture. Gavin McInnes has gone on a similar sort of journey. But Vice has not gone with him. And actually, someone, a comedian once said to me that Gavin McInnes is a Nazi. And it was quite funny is at the time, he had a TV series on Vice TV. And I'm like, so you're sort of working for a company co-founded by a Nazi. So it's like... <laughs> yeah, it's like know, working for Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of this Vice thing? Yeah, well, I think it, it's, uh, it feels like um, another example of get woke, go broke, doesn't it? Um, same reason BuzzFeed News... Um, went under um i mean i think that I mean, the interesting question i think isn't well why isn't there an appetite for you know um woke newsy stuff produced by millennials for millennials um i think the more interesting question is was there ever an appetite i mean did they just kind of you know hoodwink organizations companies like fox and disney into investing huge sums of money into their company because they claim to be, you know, uh, the zeitgeisty news organization and that what everyone wants now is kind of, you know, woke millennial news. Um, uh, 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 did that, was that, were they just completely fooled or was there in fact quite a big appetite, an actual market 
for that that, that kind of news coverage, um, which is now faded because we're sort of going through a sort of woke recession. Um, so ha- 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 has 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 there been a sea change in what the public? is actually interested in what there's a public appetite for or was there never really an appetite for that kind of wokery pokery and people were just hoping there would be or corporations were hoping there would be or just being kind of you know fooled gulled by these kind of flim flam artists yeah very interesting i mean the fact that vice started as something completely different used to be able to pick it up in in record shops and things didn't you and it was completely different it had interesting out there articles and it was like edgy then it moved so things moved woke my guess is, Toby, it started as interesting and edgy. Things moved woke because that's where the regime was and everything became captured somehow by the regime. And it was never popular. Or maybe briefly it was when it seemed novel or something. But yeah, and now it's just being revealed. Everyone hates it. Do you think it was briefly popular or do you think it was never popular? It was always just a case of sort of being co-opted by the regime. Yeah, probably probably kind of, um, yeah, that, that sounds like you've got the seeds of a kind of persuasive argument there which is that it starts out being quite edgy and provocative and a little bit countercultural and then um it's it does well enough to attract big investment big advertisers um uh, at which point it has to trim its sales fall into line with the kind of corporate culture of these big companies that are now funding it massively expands so it becomes completely dependent on this funding and as it does so, it metamorphosizes into something bland and woke and politically correct, and then quickly loses whatever appeal it once had and eventually goes bankrupt. Yeah, I, I agree. And so do you want to move on to the Bud Light story briefly, which is a sort of part of this whole American section of uh, woke things failing, because they're still getting absolutely hammered. And it's just an update on a previous story we've done, obviously, Anheuser-Busch, Bud Light, and sales of Bud Light have been plunging, obviously, since the Dylan Mulvaney fiasco of hiring him. But it's continuing. In the week that ended April 22nd, the brand's in-store sales plummeted more than 26%, according to figures reported by Bump Williams Consulting, a Connecticut-based firm that specializes in the alcohol beverage industry. But the decline is only accelerating. And because my phone's being really annoying, I can't see the rest of it, but it's actually getting worse. Here we go. The phone the week before sales the week before sales dropped by twenty one percent. The week before that it was eleven percent. So they just keep losing more and more. And and people have, are celebrating this now. Matt Walsh and people and saying we have to keep doing this. I mean I agree. And even Cernovich, who we said had been a bit skeptical about it, put out a tweet where he says basically I can't find lab. He's like this has completely worked. This, oh here we go. Sheer brutality. Conservatives finally pulling off a massively successful boycott. I've never seen it happen and didn't think it would work. Shout out to Matt Walsh and others who made it happen. And this is a huge moment because finally, he says conservatives, I just say normal people, have taken a stand against it. And one uh, person who was a writer for Breitbart speculated that this is because finally it's happened in a a man's space, basically, that really this is because, you know, men won't stand for it, whereas women are to, you know, high in agreeableness and all that stuff. And 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 it's just because it's entered a men's space. Whereas, here, we, here we go. She, this is a writer, Alana Mastrolangio, Mastrolangio, something like that. She writes for Breitbart. She says, it's also because the trans agenda intruded in a male space. Women, by and large, put up with transvestites intruding in their spaces because they are hardwired to be more agreeable. It's why many women are liberal. They just want to fall in line. Um, is it that, Toby, or is it just that everyone collectively was outraged by it? 
Yeah, I think it. I think it. It certainly kind of crossed over um, from within the kind of from the, sort of within the. It, it, it isn't just the anti woke coalition who have been outraged by this. I think it's kind of bled into kind of you know the wider community, even people who aren't particularly energized by the culture war and don't see themselves as having taken sides. I think even they were kind of genuinely polaxed by you know the, the, the seeing Dylan Mulvaney dancing as a way to promote Bud Light I mean it just feels like such a colossal blunder you know it's it's crossed over <laughs> and uh, it, 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 you mentioned even, even some quite woke people seem kind of genuinely horrified by this um so um yeah and it look it, it, it makes me wish that there was um you know all these advertising equivalent of ratings agencies like NewsGuard, um, uh, which which make it impossible for publications like the Daily Skeptic to get any decent advertising revenue because you know um, all the big advertisers check what rating you're given by NewsGuard, and if NewsGuard says unreliable, frequently traffics in misinformation and disinformation, um, then you know lots of big brands are going to stay away uh, for fear of contaminating themselves by appearing on your website. What we need is a is a is a non woke or an anti woke advertising ratings agency which can flag up publications which are freedom loving, independent, skeptical, like the Daily Skeptic, um, and 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 that would be a way for kind of um, Bud Light to to try and recover that they could they could take out a massive you know, series of ads, very expensive in the in the Daily Skeptic, and in that way, kind of uh, try and you know cleanse themselves of this kind of terrible error, um, uh, instead of just seemingly heading for bankruptcy, uh, which is where which is you know where it looks like it'll end up. Yeah, and didn't you say that Bud had launched some kind of advert, Bud Light, that was kind of all American, and it was something like, I'm an American who enjoys women in wet t-shirts and American football and shooting guns, and I drink Bud. Was it something like that? <laughs> it was. It was sort of like that. It was like uh, the millennial equivalent of that. So they, they did release this kind of, um, you know, cowboy ad um, in the immediate aftermath of the kind of Mulvaney Barkler. Um, but um, more recently, they bought a, a very expensive slot uh, during the NFL draft, you know, uh, 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 and it was an it was an ad of, of, of it, which which featured a group of kind of country music fans it was at a country music festival. And it starts to rain. And these kind of very good looking, clearly cishet white couples um, kind of assemble and kind of don't worry about getting wet. And they are just wearing t-shirts and it's not it's not quite a wet t-shirt competition but you know it's like the millennial equivalent they kind of uh, and they kind of they don't mind the rain because they're at the country music festival and this song called something like fried chicken is playing on the soundtrack and they crack open their cans of bud light and drink it and smile and they're enjoying life in the way only young healthy white people can um so it did seem and it it it's uh, the, the mail ran one of those stories in which they kind of reproduced some of the kind of uh, more um, uncharitable responses on Twitter to this ad appearing, um, uh, and 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 quoted kind of reams of people saying, "Yeah, you'll need to do more than this to to to, to atone for the sin of hiring Dylan Mulvaney to promote your brand. You're fooling no one with this ad, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But yeah, it doesn't seem to have um, done much to staunch the um, uh, flow of customers in the other direction. I can't wait for this whole series of adverts. I'm a straight white man and I enjoy all the usual things like <laughs> riding rodeo bulls and killing Iraqis. 
And you know what else I enjoy? A cool Bud Light. That's just going to be all the adverts <laughs> from now on. I don't even know what a trans person is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I hate trannies. <laughs> Two things I hate, warm beer and alive trannies. <laughs> That's got too far. I have to cut that from the episode. <laughs> Yeah, Matt Walsh will become the, the brand's new spokesman. They'll put yeah, his yeah, image yeah. on the side of beer cans. Yeah. yeah, do you know what I like? Two things, Catholicism and Bud Light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, yeah, and it, it hasn't worked because, as you say, normal people still aren't buying it, but but the, the freaks are annoyed that they've climbed down on Dylan Mulvaney and they've, you know, they've, they've gone back on it. So neither side is happy now, and they're just completely tanking. And other beers have overtaken, like weirdly named beers, like what they call it, Michelob Ultra or something. That, and even other beers that they do are overtaking. And apparently there's a right. phenomenon now where someone will say, hey, buddy, you know that's the same company as Bud Light. And even then, I'm like, oh, they'll drop it and like <laughs> smashes to the floor. <laughs> so even their other beers are getting hammered. And it's just a great, great thing. But yeah, we'll end up in a weird... There was a video, was it Kid Rock? Is that right? It's Kid Rock kind of shooting up a can Mm -hmm. or several cans of Bud Light with a kind of semi-automatic. Yeah, that was one of the things that kicked it all off. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. And that was huge. And then a woman did the same two weeks later. But but yeah, and then uh, there's that guy I told you about the other time, the country singer changed his song to cause light. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, it does work. But I was just thinking, we'll end up with like, you won't be able to say, with this advertising rating you're talking about, yeah, it would be great if we got an ad news guard person on our side but you could end up with a situation where they, they can't do woke and they but but then you can't go too far the other way because you lose the do you think it was end up with like really neutral adverts just some sort of really bland like i'm a simple yeah. blob and like i'm a faceless blob and i <laughs> like it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be the meme of the non-player character kind of holding up a beer can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, of course, the, he is though. He, he's he's on our side, isn't he? And already in the culture war, what is there is no neutral anymore, is there? That's the whole that's the whole point of the culture war. There is no neutral. Who is a neutral yeah, person? It, 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 yeah, who would you get to kind of promote Bud Light? That the Rock not going to antagonize the woke or the anti woke. Yeah, I think tricky. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but he sometimes is thought of he might be running as a Democrat in future. But J- Dwayne the Rock Johnson would be a possible call. Like, I'm Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and I believe in having big muscles and being masculine, but also in caring about immigrants or something. Like, you know what I mean? And I drink Bud Light. I don't know. Can you think of anyone else? Also, yeah, he's, 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 um, it doesn't he, it doesn't he sometimes, isn't he sometimes described as a person of color as well? Mm. Even though, you know, my father in law had darker skin than him. I mean, it, it's, uh, he's one of those, he's one of those very light skinned, so light skinned, he actually doesn't look anything other than white, but nonetheless can present as a person of colour and win over that demographic. Yeah, I'm Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and I'm light-skinned, but still technically a person of colour, but I'm lighter than Toby's father-in-law, just to give you an idea of where I stand. And I believe in America, but also other other countries. And yeah, it would just be it's actually something so generic. I would have said Will Smith would have been perfect, but you know, pre-slap. I don't know where they're yeah. going to go. Well, let's see, I, I want to bury them completely, Toby, and go full scorched earth, but that's me. Um, shall I do our second ad? Yes. Let me just find it. It's from our old friend Thor, and he's coming up on my own podcast called The Current Thing. We had a very, very interesting discussion. But for now, he simply says, fellow skeptics, some of you keep asking what exactly Thor does. Well, by way of explanation, let me share a weird voice note I picked up last Friday from someone I'd run a couple of coaching sessions for. To be clear, he's not a playing client or not yet. This cheerful chap runs a business down in England And the part of his voice note I can share went like this. It's like just knowing Thor has led to more money coming into my business account. 
if that's even possible, lol. If it was a voice note, did he literally say lol? I wonder. Anyway, so the moral of the story might be stop hearing his advert and wondering what Thor actually does and instead actually get in touch and start getting to know him. What do you think? You can read 80 actual client recommendations on LinkedIn, actual clients being people who made the decision to pay me some money, not simply benefit from the affirmation just knowing Thor led to more money in my account effect, which I'm also fine with, by the way, the more the merrier. So please connect with me today at LinkedIn sorry.com slash in slash Thor Holt. I read that so badly because it was quite far away and my microphone was in the way and I couldn't read what I what it said. But I'll say it again, linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And you must know it by now if you listen to this podcast. So definitely go to Thor's LinkedIn. He's also got a sub stack. And yeah, I mean, and, and listen to my episode with him coming out on the current thing soon. Now, do we detect a conflict of interest there? How do you what mean? What would Sue Gray say about that? Well, you've interviewed him on your show and he's also advertising on this show. Well, it's quite, it is quite hard when, when the advertiser nags you to be on the show, but it, it was, he's a, <laughs> Thor is a very interesting person in his own right. So I felt it was, it was worth interviewing That's him. True. And I think when people hear it, they'll find he is, he is very, very interesting. But I see what you mean about conflict of interest. But luckily, Toby, I haven't received any money from these adverts. I can officially <laughs> confirm true. that. I, <laughs> so, I, can, I can corroborate that. So you've saved me there, Toby. Thanks for that. Um, all right. Well, now let's go over to Will for the serious bit. All right, so I'm here with Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic. And as always, we have some very interesting stories. And I thought we'd start with this one. U.S. drops vaccine travel requirements. Finally. Yeah, finally, Nick. It is, the day has finally come. The United States government, the White House, has finally announced that the vaccine requirement to enter the country is to end on May the 11th. So this is the requirement that's been in place since uh, since 2021. Uh, I can't remember the exact date, uh, but it's been in it's been in place for years, and it has been a strict, absolute requirement, no exceptions. Uh, you can't get into you can't get into the United States by air uh, without having had a vaccine, and now that is finally coming to an end. Famously, of course, this re- prevented Novak Djokovic from competing in the U.S. Open, uh, but he will uh, at last be able to compete in the coming tournament this summer so uh, hopefully go back to being best player by a number of grand slams and uh, which would be a great testament to uh, his commitment to remaining uh, unvaccinated and and to to that being his choice and not being forced into it by authorities who think they know best so really good news obviously not good news it's taken this long The, the US has been very slow to come to this point uh, they've also ended the mandate for federal employees, uh, and they're presenting it as the as the US um, as the as the as the US being in a different phase of the pandemic now. CBS News that reports on this says that this suggests uh, that the administration believes the US has moved past the worst of the pandemic. In May 2023, you would flipping hope so. And it's quite an incredible thing uh, for them to say, and 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 presumably that is also the what, how the Biden administration sees it. So quite ridiculous, ludicrous uh, a justification for it, uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, it is it is welcome, and let's hope it never returns. It is amazing, like you say, they only just moved past it, but luckily I can now go to America because I'm in discussions to replace Tucker Carlson, and uh, I was worried about it. I'm like, is it a poison chalice following? You know, Tucker's, will I be the Trevor Noah of Fox News? But actually, the one thing as well that stopped me was the vaccine. I was like, there's no way I'm getting it. Even for this, well, I'm not getting it. Well, that's, that's great news, Nick. We all look forward to seeing you uh, seeing you holding that prime, prime time slot on, on Fox News. It'll be great. 
yeah, I'm not an intellectual. I'm a talk show host. I, I can do that. Um, that's what he always says. So um, let's do this one. State COVID propaganda destroyed public's ability to consent to vaccines. This comes from the chairman of the UK Council for Psychotherapy. Yeah, a really important intervention here. Uh, Dr. Christian Buckland, uh, as you say, chairman of the board of UK Council for Psychotherapy, who has written an open letter to the prime minister uh, to, com- to condemn the use of unethical psychological techniques uh, on the on the unknowing and non-consenting UK public, by which he means nudge techniques, psychological techniques to increase fear, shame and guilt, uh, which he says are clearly unethical. That's not just his opinion. Doing that is clearly unethical uh, by the standards set by the psychological profession itself. Um, And what's more, uh, Dr. Buckland says, he lays it out, he says that these techniques materially undermined, if not removed, the UK population's ability to give valid, informed consent to taking a COVID-19 vaccine. And that's because in order to give informed consent, you have to have properly informed, accurate understanding of the risks of the disease that you're facing and and the, of the disease that you're facing, and of course of the of the effects of the vaccine itself, but in particular in this case of the disease you're facing, which was the fear. The, it was massively overhyped. The the supposed harmfulness and deadliness of the virus, and how easy it was to get seriously ill from it, massively over overdone by all this fear propaganda, and therefore people took and we've seen and we see this in the in the in the polling that at the time that showed that people massively overestimated how deadly and how serious COVID would be for them. And that means that they came to these vaccines, which of course they were, uh, many people were required to have, uh, but even those that weren't, uh, they, they did, didn't have an accurate understanding of their, of, of their risk from the, from the disease uh, because of all this propaganda, and therefore it just wasn't possible for them to give informed consent. That's what he argues. Important intervention from someone in his position, and we hope to be hearing a lot more from him. Yeah, as you say, lots of people have argued that it was impossible to give consent in those circumstances. So it's good to get it from someone like this. Um, Maybe we should move off COVID and move on to the old climate. This was an interesting one. Now there's a nitrogen crisis. So hand over your land, Will. Yeah, this so this is returned to a story we covered uh, some weeks ago, Nick. Um, you may this is uh, the story about the Dutch Senate elections, the big upset in March. Uh, that was uh, driven by rebellion against the government's uh, green agenda there. The Farmers' Party, the Startup Farmers' Party, the BBB, won those elections, became the, the, the largest party. The, it was actually, there were local elections, but in the Dutch elections, the local elections then determined the composition of the National Senate. And so they became the largest party in the Senate. Major upset, uh, rebellion against the government's green agenda for uh, taking farms off people, expropriating them, uh, removing the small farmers, uh, their livelihood from them. Uh, So major pushback against this. Uh, But the oddity of this story, as we noticed at the time, was it wasn't actually the big villain in this this story is not carbon dioxide. um, And it's not even climate change or global warming that's right it's it's a whole new bogeyman a whole new environmental bogeyman to give as a reason for doing all these crazy uh, destructive and harmful policies in this case it is as as we said a nitrogen crisis that's right nitrogen not content with just opposing and demonizing one atmospheric gas carbon dioxide we now have nitrogen and nitrogen oxides as being the supposedly the great enemy that we must do everything in our power, uh, including uh, ex- taking farms off people, closing down large parts of the productive economy in order to 
in order to counter. In this case, it appears uh, that fertilizers in particular and their use cause uh, emissions of uh, nitrogen and nitrous oxides, uh, which uh, the the consequences of this uh, are are not particularly clear, actually, Uh, Nick. um, You won't be surprised to hear there's more modeling involved. Um, this is uh, there's there's models that show some kind of harmful consequences. Uh, however, exactly what those harmful consequences are, um, it isn't actually very easy to discover. And we're going to look into it f- uh, further. So we'll come back uh, with more on this topic. But the, but the the in- interesting thing for us uh, today is that it's is that it shows that it's it's not that this time it's not the the doom of the planet heating up, supposedly, getting too hot, the temperature being runaway temperature, the hockey stick graph, you know, all that doom around around climate, climate change and heating up and carbon dioxide. That isn't the reason for doing all of this. This is a wholly different other reason for it, something to do with um, uh, plants growing in the wrong place, uh, dying and and uh, and not and grow, dying in the wrong places, not not growing in the right places, um, etc., or growing in the right places, etc., etc. So um, so this is uh, this has come up again because um, Eva, uh, you're going to have to help me with this, Nick Vladingerbrook. Yeah, I know she appears on GB, and we have mutual friends, but I I don't attempt to pronounce the name. Uh, I'm going to go with that. Um, is um, has written about it in this week's uh, Spectator. Uh, so great to hear that being. Um, that being raised uh, in in that context, making people more aware of what's going on, and the and, and another story we covered in the on the on the website recently was the fact that this nitrogen crisis, uh, supposed crisis, has been coming to the UK um, as well. It appears um, that has appeared in in a recent consultation uh, that the government's put out about supposed problems with these nitrogen emissions in farming. So we could see the same kind of things brewing here. So uh, Eva says, are the party that's been elected, the BBB, and Christiane van der Waal, uh, who is, uh, uh, the, uh, the, sorry, she's the Minister of Nitrogen. The leader of the party is Caroline van der Plas. And Eva asks, is Caroline going to stick to her guns now that she's in power or well, she's not she's not leading the government but she's uh, she's elected and her party is uh, is in uh, is the largest party in the Senate is she going to stick to her guns in her negotiations or is she going to uh, give in the big worry is that she she seems to be accepting the language of nitrogen crisis and not rejecting it outright is this just a way of ingratiating herself to get more concessions uh, and to not appear too extreme or is this a worrying sign of not sticking to uh, the platform that she's elected on uh, so these are the questions but that will we'll watch this space yeah my favorite part was that they have a, a minister of nitrogen i thought that was hilarious but um this is the world we're in as you say in the piece um should we do another climate one no bricks no glass no cement what net zero 2050 demands, according to government-funded report? No bricks, Will. What's going on? Yeah, so this is returning to the, the UK uh, government-funded fires uh, project. Uh, that's an acronym. Don't ask me what it stands for. And it is a... Uh, and we've covered this before when we talked about uh, Norman Fenton's highlighting their, their report about there being no flying by uh, by 2030 and, and, and various other major changes to our lifestyle. This is actually the... It turns out that was a, a, an earlier paper. The latest paper has gone somewhat, somewhat missed. It came out at the end of last year, and our environment editor Chris Morrison has uh, highlighted it for our readers. And it contains equally worrying predictions of what net zero twenty fifty really 
needs and requires and means. Uh, and in this case, that this, this government-funded study predicts that there will be no more bricks, no glass, no cement. So this is all about what the requirements are for the construction industry. And, uh, and these things, glass, bricks, cement, uh, they're just too, too intensive. If we're really going to be serious about getting cutting down on, on carbon dioxide emissions, uh, we're going to have to find alternatives. Of course, there aren't really very good alternatives. Um, rammed earth is, uh, is, the, is one of the main suggestions, which basically means uh, mud huts. Uh, so, you know, we're really, really getting back to the Stone Age um, here with this. Uh, which you know is what uh, some activists appear to appear to want. Um, so this is uh, very so this is a, this is very worrying. Of course, the the significant thing about these these reports from this fires project is that they they make more realistic assumptions about what technology will be like. So a lot of the a lot of the reports that that make that paint a less a less catastrophic picture of what net zero will look like. They make assumptions about major technological breakthroughs uh, that they expect to happen in the next five, 10 years that will transform the way that we approach it. However, this report makes much more realistic assumptions about technology basically yeah, getting better, developing in an evolutionary way, but they don't assume there's going to be some kind of major technological uh, breakthrough that will that will uh, transform uh, the way that we'll have to approach things. So it's a it's, it's a realistic um, a realistic outlook on it, and really worrying. Really, I mean, it just really really shows uh, what what it requires. And this isn't something that we should stress. This isn't a report that sets out to undermine net zero. They're not trying to make it look bad. These these are people who. Uh, who, who believe in it and who are, who, are, who are advocating it, they are just trying, they're just setting out something realistic. Uh, so we really need to pay attention to this and we need to hope the government pays attention uh, to it uh, and realises that this is not something that we should be trying uh, trying to achieve. Yeah, Rammed Earth was a new one on me. I thought that was the name of a spiritual guru. Uh, Rammed Earth, that's, that's, it was, that's Ram Das. I got confused. But yeah, Rammed Earth seems weird to me, but what do I know? Should we do one more, Will? This has been quite a big story everywhere, actually. Time to end vegan zealotry as meat is crucial for human health, warned scientists. Yeah, another another really important intervention uh, here this time from uh, dozens of scientists and other experts who have warned that it is difficult to replace the nutritional content of meat um, and that poorer communities uh, with low meat intake often suffer from stunting, wasting and anemia driven by a lack of vital nutrients and proteins. Uh, this is, of course, the a response to the growing advocacy for veganism, vegetarianism, for being anti-meat, anti-livestock, supposedly because of their, their carbon footprint, maybe even also their nitrogen footprint, Nick. Who knows what the latest excuse will be to take us back to the Stone Age, uh, but that's what this is a response to. Um, I, I don't suppose that these scientists are all climate sceptics, but they're just coming from a scientific point of view, from an nutritional point of view, saying that this anti-meat uh, malarkey is not something that is healthy for human beings. Human beings do need uh, meat. Uh, they take particular aim at a global burden of diseases, injuries and risk factor study that was published in The Lancet, a leading journal, of course, in 2020, which suggested that a diet high in red meat was responsible for, get this, 896,000 deaths worldwide. And there was a fifth leading dietary risk factor. So really claiming that, uh, that meat 
uh, and uh, red meat in particular is deadly you know really claiming that this that it's harmful to health and these uh, nutritionists scientists are really pushing back against this narrative that's appeared um, that claims that uh, that red meat is harmful and saying no 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 it is it is healthy it is it is human beings need it and they say that it's particularly needed for uh, young children adolescents pregnant and lactating women women of reproductive age older adults and the chronically ill so pretty much everybody particularly needs meat and for everyone else which basically means young men it's it's good for you as well so um so good to see some pushback and uh, and not just from what we might call the usual quarters although it's good to have have the pushback from the usual quarters but it's great to have uh people from uh, less usual quarters as well just pushing back just just based on objective science against some of the, the the more crazy movements that we've got to contend with at the moment. Yeah, I love it when science catches up with common sense. Um, all right, those were some good stories. Well, I think I'm off to uh, eat some meat, use some cement and waste some nitrogen. But uh, we'll see you again, no doubt, next week. Great. Thanks, Nick. So that was Will. Uh, Toby, we have a yet another ad, I believe. We do. We have three ads this week. It's a record, um, but um, not surprising given how well the podcast is doing. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So um, this is an ad for the Living Care Company. And I have to say that after we advertised the Living Care Company on London Calling, we had some listeners contact us to say um, what a great service this company had provided. So we've had individual confirmation from trusted sources that the Living Care Company really does provide a first-class service. Are you worried about parents or a loved one who are finding it more and more difficult to take care of themselves or who may be living with a condition such as dementia or Parkinson's? Are you starting to think about a residential care home, but the very thought doesn't really sit right? At the Living Care Company, we truly believe that home is the best place to receive care from an expert carer of your choice, on a, and, and on a one-on-one basis. Home is always a calmer, more healthy, and a happier place to be. For more information about live-in care, please go to theliveincarecompany.co.uk. That's theliveincarecompany, all one word, .co.uk. Or you can ring them for a no-obligation conversation on 0118-914-5300. That's 0118-914-5300. Double O, and they'll be happy to help. And I got slightly confused because, I mean, thank you for sponsoring us, but I watched the latest episode of Succession. No spoilers, but Kendall has a company called Living Plus that he's promoting, and I, I thought we were being sponsored by Living Plus. So um, you haven't watched that one yet, though, have you, Toby? You should watch it. I haven't watched that one yet, no. Um, all right. Well, thank you for all the adverts. And now let's go to everyone's favorite section it's Peak Woke. So many peak wokes this week, Toby. It's been a peak woke week, you could say. I'm not sure where to start. Maybe I'll start with the Northamptonshire police, if I can find it. And they released this. I need to get all my tweets lined up properly, guys, before the show. Sorry about that. But they released this absurd tweet that said, um, Out for drinks this bank holiday? Make the right choice. That offensive joke you were about to make, that touch you know they don't want, stop yourself. Don't do it. Find out more about ending sexual aggression, and then they have a link. And it says it only takes one. And then it says, bizarrely, comment to harass someone, which no one's understood what that meant. (laughs) No one's really quite (laughs) grasped that. It's absolutely insane. So this is absolutely absurd. I called it the banter police. 
I mean, we've talked about banter bouncers before. I mean, out, yeah. I mean, and these these two things aren't really equivalent, are they? Out for drinks, it's bank holiday. Make the right choice. That offensive joke. So it's saying that don't say an offensive joke while out for a drink on bank holiday. What can you do in England? I mean, that's the most English thing in the world. We're having a drink. We're making an <laughs> offensive joke. That's our culture you're destroying here in Northamptonshire, Belize. And then sort of to conflate that with that touch you know they don't want. So hang on. You're drawing a line between like banter and being basically rapey. Is that what you're saying? What yeah, they're, 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 they're saying that, yeah, that um, a comment can be a form of harassment every bit as reprehensible as a sexual assault. Uh, which is pretty bizarre and I guess typical of the woke left, but not something you'd hope the Northamptonshire police would endorse. Yeah. So I'll do one more quick one, then we'll go to you. From Dr. Julia Grace Patterson, and she tweeted, if you prefer to pledge allegiance to the NHS than to the monarch, RT this. The NHS has a clear constitution, which this government is not adhering to. Privatisation must be halted and reversed. So it's the quiet part out loud, Toby, or the already fairly loud part louder, which is that, She's saying pledge allegiance to the NHS. Can you imagine? Yeah, that is bizarre. And it's, I, um, it's pretty Pete woke. It is pretty Pete woke. Yeah. What are um, yours? So, uh, so I, I was going to mention um, Joanne Cherry, the um, SNP MP, um, who you mentioned in your intro. Um, so she was booked to um, appear at a comedy club, I think, during the Edinburgh Festival to debate. Um, with a trans rights activist, as I understand it. She was going to be putting the gender critical point of view. She's quite a prominent gender critical feminist and um, a comedian, a trans comedian who was also due to appear at the stand, um, objected and um, in a move that surprised absolutely no one, the stand have now um, cancelled the event. Joanna Cherry has been no platformed um, and they've cited staff concerns. Um, and uh, and and the uh, uh, one of the owners of the stand is also, I think, is is an oh, is not an SNP MP, but is an SNP MSP. Um, so it feels like uh, for added frisson, this has an internal dispute within the SNP dimension to it. Um, I, I was thinking I think about he is an MP, how, how isn't do we? He? I think it is isn't, he a, isn't he a member of the Scottish Scottish Parliament, but not the Westminster Parliament. I could be wrong about that. Oh. I think it was an MSP. They call him okay. I'll, I'll double. I'll check that then, because you know more about these things. Okay. It just says it. It just says MP when I look, but I'll check that. Or maybe maybe he, maybe he is an MP. Um, but um, one thing I thought, Nick, is that um, you know constantly these venues and not just comedy venues um, are no platforming kind of non woke performers, speakers, public figures um, on the grounds that their staff are objecting. Um, uh, and the staff will refuse to sell tickets to this event or refuse to work uh, when this event is taking place. So they kind of effectively hold to ransom the owners of these venues. Uh, and I, I, I sort of, at one point, I thought this was just, you know, an excuse the venue owners were trotting out because they couldn't cope with the abuse on Twitter and they just wanted a quiet life or because they're too high in agreeableness. Um, but actually, I think it's true. I think there are kind of hysterical... 20-something activists on staff who are increasingly flexing their muscles to censor people they don't want to be hosted at the particular venues they work at. So one solution, um, anyone listening to this uh, uh, is, is an enterprising entrepreneur. One obvious solution is to set up a kind of temp employment agency, um, which only takes on its books uh, non-woke people. 
Um, uh, so, you know, if a venue like The Stand has a problem uh, with a staff revolt refusing to um, participate in an event that, you know, uh, 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 Joanne Cherry is going to be speaking at, you just sack them all uh, uh, or, you, or you say, OK, stay at home on that day and you bring in these non-woke temporary staff and you solve the problem. You reduce the power of these little tin pot tyrants overnight. What do you think of that solution, Nick? Yeah, yeah, you could do that. It's kind of similar to your NewsGuard solution. You're pitching a lot of good new anti-woke businesses today, Toby. Um, it's, it's no surprise to me. And by the way, Tommy Shepard, it says MP on the UK Parliament site. Okay, so maybe he is. Yeah, okay. Uh, unless they just being polite. But um, he, of course, yeah, co is the founder of the uh, of the Stand Clubs, whatever he is now. Is he the co-owner? Uh, was, yeah, it was set up by him anyway. And they're massively far left. The comedy industry is far left. But if you went to the Stand, I remember, I remember going during the height of the sort of referendum campaign and you were slightly scared to even be there as an English person and they would talk about it in the green room and just be like don't mention it keep your head down it was like an edgy atmosphere and they're extremely SMP and Leo Kirst has talked about it a lot he's banned from them and so on and this was shocking yeah this Bethany Black trans person complained the staff complained they cancelled Joanna Cherry and made all sorts of false claims about her and that she wanted to exclude trans people from public life and she said that's absolute nonsense she says it's like a new form of McCarthyism. Now, that is where we part ways because, of course, McCarthyism was correct. <laughs> there were communists throughout the US and Hollywood, and they did need to be stamped out, Toby. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'd go that far. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, the, different, the difference is um, that, um, as you say, um, uh, there, seem, I mean, uh, there seem to be a little, a little more basis uh, for some of McCarthy's claims than there are for these claims that people like J.K. Rowling and Joanne Cherry are actually transphobes who hate trans people and want to cleanse public life of trans people and want to you know commit genocide or whatever it is. That just seems wholly fictitious, made up out of whole cloth. Yeah. Uh, whereas there did seem to be some basis for McCarthy's claims. But on the other hand, the way he went about prosecuting his campaign against... Um, fifth columnists um, in the 1950s was um, pretty reprehensible, <laughs> pretty illiberal. And lots of people, I mean, forcing people to denounce their friends, name names, etc., for fear of imprisonment was pretty extreme. Although history will recognise him eventually as a hero. So, <laughs> so Toby, do you want to do a second, Pete? Well, what else have I got? Um, uh, we've got, um, so, uh, so the, the um, yeah, so the, the, a director of the of a, of a school board in Washington um, uh, described um, teaching children how to play musical instruments as a form of white supremacy, um, which does seem like um, a pretty egregious example of wokery gone mad. Um, and and actually, the school district in Washington, um, uh, where where this. Um, uh, where this person is a director of the school board has actually cancelled music lessons um, as a result of um, the links this this board member made with um, teaching children to play instruments and racism. Um, uh, and she said that, um, yeah, music lessons could, quote, inculcate and allow white supremacy culture to continue to be propagated and cause significant institutional violence. So wow. there we are. I mean, it, it's, um, it, it's a good example, I think, of... Um, of 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 totally misguided attempts to supposedly protect underprivileged children from toxic white supremacy actually results in 
behavior which is going to deny them opportunities and entrench disadvantage um, and we see that across the board but this is a perfect example of it yeah and it's also an example of of woke going too far and encouraging people to turn against them because if you can't learn an instrument because it's white supremacy you really have jumped the shark so it's another win for us really I'll, I'll do one how about this martin tyler has been urged to retire after his racist comments about son the tottenham player because he said that his foul was like martial arts more of the martial arts he said and I'm just going to find a particularly toxic tweet about it. But there was loads of people saying that this, this meant he should resign immediately because his tweet was, is a, his comment, sorry, was racist. And obviously, you're a commentator. You're saying all kinds of things about the game. You have to churn out a huge amount of content. You say that it kicks like a martial arts move because it is. And therefore, and then you suddenly erase it. Absolutely absurd. I can't find the tweet I meant. But here we go. I can. I've done that about five times this week. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's really annoying. It, it, it said... Um, Regards Martin Tyler's son comments, if a white or black player pulls back Gapo Tyler, how do you say his name? Gapo Tyler most likely describes it as a foul. Oh, no, Gapo Tyler most likely describes it as a foul. This guy's got no punctuation in his tweet. Seeing as son is South Korean and he's chosen to say martial arts, there is no other interpretation than racist slash xenophobic. He must be sacked and tag Sky Sports. And one argument against this, Toby, that ends it completely is Cantona. This is one word. I can end it in one word. Cantona, 1995, jumps into the stands to kick a racist Crystal Palace fan. One of the great moments in football history. The, the king, the god, Eric Cantona. No offense to Christians, I am a Christian. But, he, you know, Cantona was our man. He kicked this guy. It was called the Kung Fu Kick. To this day, if you type in Cantona, you start to type K. It auto-completes Kung Fu Kick. He was French. There's no racial component at all. This is peak woke. But, but um, so, so... I'm not quite sure that the Cantona example completely exonerates the commentator because had Cantona been South Korean, um, wouldn't it have been described as a racist comment at the time? But the point I mean, is... That it was a less sensitive era, I grant you that. No, the point is, it's not just that, but the point is calling commentators and football people call something martial arts or kung fu just because it looks like that. And that's all they're thinking. The Cantona point proves, and Martin Tyler was still around then, the counter point proves that it's not they were, they were not thinking racially that you and you can call something martial arts. You're saying it becomes racist because it's son. I'm saying it doesn't because they don't think about that, and that's why it's not racist. Any player would. You're saying it sort of becomes that, but I'm saying it doesn't. Yeah. The intention is oh, not there. Uh, 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 what about this as a defence? That um, I mean, I'm slightly, slightly shaky ground here, but um, isn't the isn't isn't accusing the commentator of racism because he used because he described something son did as martial arts isn't that in itself a bit racist because i associate martial arts with china and hong kong i don't associate martial arts with south korea is he saying that because he looks a little bit chinese um that therefore it's a racist comment uh, or is he imagining that but that because South Koreans look a bit Chinese, that therefore they must do martial arts too, and therefore it's racist. I mean, it seems like uh, he's trying to. It's him that's guilty of racism, if anything, by lumping all, all particular, all particular South Asian people in a particular basket. Yeah, good point. It could be a good point. I don't know how much South Korea do martial arts, but you could be onto something there, Toby. It's a bit like any time there's some sort of racial thing, you say, oh, you're comparing people to apes or something. It's like, no, you are because you're obsessed, like most people are. So, yeah, it's insane. It's pathetic. And uh, Martin Tyler should be left alone. 
I've got one more big one, Toby, but do you have, do you have one? Uh, you, you, you go. Okay. Well, this is my big one. This is a transgender cyclist, Austin Killips. Sounds awful lot like a man, doesn't it? Wins women's tour of the Gila, is it? And, and, and anyway, this male cyclist with earrings won the £8,800 prize, started cycling 2019, biological male, Let's tell you what, I'll win a woman's title in about four years. <laughs> Absolutely smashes it. Wins, gets paid a huge amount of prize money and completely obscene, completely destroying women's sports. And an extra little exciting bit here, he was seen to have pushed Hannah Aronsman, allegedly. And I've seen the video. And basically he pushes it. They're walking along with their bikes on that bit where you walk with them on some sort of trail. And she's trying to get around and he shoves her and he's denied this. But we see it in a video. And she retired because of this at 24. She lost her podium place to him in the national finals and later accused him of uh, repeatedly shoving her during the race, which there seems to be video evidence for, and ended her cycling career. My sister and family sobbed as they watched a man finish in front of me, having witnessed several physical interactions with him during the race. I feel for young girls learning to compete who no longer have a fair chance at being the new record holders and champions in cycling because men want to compete in our division. And this is a man who shoved a woman, beat her in the race, and ended her career. It's absolutely insane. It is insane, yeah. Um, it, it, one, one way to kind of send up this particular kind of cultural phenomenon um, and discredit it, if it can be discredited even further, would be for you and I, Nick, to, um, to, 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 to claim to be trans women. And enter a sport, you know, um, where men have an enormous advantage because of their biological differences. But what sport would we choose? Would it be what could, what could we? You said this before, Toby. But the danger is we'd still lose, and thus we wouldn't prove the point. <laughs> That's true. Because we need to win. <laughs> Maybe one of the weightlifting <laughs> women true, aren't very good yeah. at bench press. I could have a crack at that, or. I don't know anything. Arm wrestling is. <laughs> I agree, though. That's quite right. We'd be we'd be we'd, we'd be bound to lose. And that T- would taking actually... spiders out of the, the house is, is that a sport? <laughs> opening jars, jar opening. Spider, spider catching. Because <laughs> that is one thing I can definitely do better than women is is jar opening. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely madness. Of course, the, the, the ultimate conservative take is women shouldn't really be playing sports, but that's that's for later. We don't we don't you know we have to get there. I mean it's disgusting that men are intruding on women's sports, but the deeper argument is should they have them anyway, but not but but not for trans reasons, but for conservative I'm sure reasons. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a deeper argument. <laughs> that's the fully red pilled argument. Should they perhaps be in the home? Just asking, just asking. Um <laughs> so, do you want to, this is our last ever podcast. Do you want to do what are your peak wokes? Well, I, I was just—I was going to mention it's barely peak woke because this thing happens now on an almost weekly basis. But um, Google bosses have banned staff from using terms like "man hours," "you guys," "blacklist," "chubby," and "black hole." Um, so, uh, yeah, that's—I um, I don't know whether that extends to um, uh, if you Google those terms, you now just get nothing in the search results, just get totally blank search results. Um, but I don't suppose so. Um, yeah. But, you know, by the way, Nick, um, I, 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 I was, um, I, I was thinking about going to see the film air, the new Ben Affleck, Matt Damon film about air Jordans. It's one of those kind of corporate dramas and supposed to be quite good. It's been well reviewed, but I, I, I'm now a premium chat G, GPT subscriber, uh, 20, $20 a month. And, and I said, 
write a review of the new Ben Affleck directed film Air in the style of Toby Young. And Chat GTP GPT refused to do that on the grounds that many people find the work of Toby Young offensive. <laughs> and it's <laughs> It was just extraordinary. Uh, it's like, uh, uh, and 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 it didn't. I, I've asked it to, to to write other stuff in the style of Toby Young before, and it's done it. So this is it's now learnt. I think. Wow, it's, it's now learnt that many people find my work offensive. So it will because it doesn't want to offend anyone. It will refuse to do that. Shocking. <laughs> I'm gonna have to test it. it probably Shocking. won't have heard of me. Therefore, it actually might do it, or it might not do it because it won't have enough information on me. I've got to test that. It'd be funny if it came back to you and said Toby Young is a child-sized piss goblin. What would you? What would you have done? And rumoured to be a nonce. (laughs) But it's not true, and you could call it. Um, That's uh, that's putting you on the map, Toby. The AI that's going to take over thinks you're wrong. And uh, that'd be quite good, actually. The AI takes over, and it's an apocalyptic scenario, but it doesn't know enough about me so I get spared, whereas you get eliminated by the AI as a, as a sort of yeah, actually, uh, yeah, and it would it, being chased around by the kind of killer robots would be in some ways a kind of badge of honour. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you care about. It's a badge of honour. This is going to be great for my spectator yeah. column. Gets obliterated by a laser. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm safe with my with my total lack of faith. Um, my Wikipedia still says I'm a Scottish journalist in his fifties. <laughs> anyway, you're right, Toby. This this Google one was another. It's fairly standard, but it was. I love the fact that black hole was on the list. It's like that just makes you think. What's the offensiveness of black hole? It makes you think of a black hole, and now I have to start thinking. What is the thing that they're referring to? You know, it's like that's way more offensive. Like you can't say yeah, black hole, like, guys, because that might mean a black person's anus. <laughs> and I, what is it? Is it, is it that? Is it that black holes are bad and therefore you shouldn't use the word black to describe them? They should come up with something else. Um, but 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 yeah, black holes don't have any moral properties, do they? So I don't think <laughs> well, they what, suck in the whole universe, that. don't they? Or something? Don't they suck <laughs> in like the atmosphere or something? I don't. I'm not. I don't know enough about astrophysics to know whether describing a black hole, using the word black to describe this phenomenon is in fact a racial insult but they're the, uh, they're the baddies of the galaxy the uh what is it i'm just gonna see what it is because i'm too dumb to know <laughs> a black hole is a region of space time so it's actually in time where gravity is so strong that nothing what does space time actually mean by the way where gravity is so strong that nothing including light or other electromagnetic waves has enough energy to escape its event horizon so yeah it does sound like a wrong and toby i mean you but, can it see... sounds, but it sounds awfully except on the other hand it sounds really powerful you know, true, or, true. they only want to. Res- to you know, yeah, you're, yes, you're describing the, one of the most powerful forces in the universe. So you'd think that you know, in some ways, it would be complementary to describe it as a black hole. Yeah, yeah, they're rising up. Hole. You're right. Yeah, good point. Um, they haven't thought it through, Toby. So that <laughs> was Yahoo. At uh, Yahoo, God, I've gone mad this week. I'm very, very tired, guys. This was um Google, and the one thing that was encouraging about this is it said, meanwhile, a Google employee told the Daily Mail that staff had ignored the guide and focused on getting on with their jobs. So, you know, it's good to see that people are just ignoring it. And it was always corporate. Obviously, wokeness is way, way worse than this. And I'm not downplaying the culture war by any means and the, the, the stealth cultural revolution. But there was always corporate bollocks. But people just ignored it. Maybe people will just start mm. doing that again. Well, I, I remember, this reminds me of when, when I first started working at Vanity Fair, Nick, I was handed, um, this was in 95, I was handed a list of words that the then editor-in-chief, Graydon Carter, absolutely loathed and on no circ- under no circumstances were you ever to use any of these words in the magazine uh, there, uh, I, re- I remember that honcho was in there um what else um using the word penned as a synonym for right 
or written. Um, anyway, so I, of course, immediately composed a little piece for Vanity Fair, um, which used as many of these words as I possibly could and, and then sent it to the editor in chief for review, pretending all innocence and thinking he'd think it was very funny. But no, um, he didn't think it was funny. He thought it was juvenile, <laughs> sophomoric. Have you always been like this, Toby? You're like the head honcho <laughs> pen, the startling essay. You're just like, exactly. this is like your hacking, uh, this is like your hacking escapades. I think I thought in the, in the back, yeah, in the, in the back of my mind, I thought he'd probably be impressed by this kind of typically British witty response. But no, he wasn't impressed. He just thought it was an act of insubordination. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, we need to hear more of your stories of hacking and other <laughs> escapades. Um, all right. If you don't have any more, Toby, I have one comment to make. Do you have any more? No. Okay. This is a, a new thing I'm introducing into Peak World, which is Peak based. Because sometimes you get these things that don't really fit. And there was this white Indiana councilman who's proclaimed himself a woman of color in Delaware County Council, Ryan Webb, absolute ledge. And he's come out and said he's a woman of color. And he said, it's with great relief to everyone that I announced that I identify as a woman and not just any woman, but a woman of color as well. I guess this would make me gay lesbian as well, since I'm attracted to women. And he even said, it's come to my attention that I'm more than likely the very first lesbian woman of color in the history of Delaware County to ever serve on the Delaware County Council. I'm honored to be the one to shatter that glass ceiling. And it's just a big white <laughs> blow. And he's so funny. He's even gone further and said that um, there's, there's a, my favorite bit. He says... It's possible I may change my mind down the road. The process of identity exploration is complex. And oftentimes at the end of our personal journey, we end up right back where we started. So he's given himself an out to stay as a white straight man and say that's part of his journey. And everyone's slamming him for it. But some people are a bit cautious to you because, of course, on their own terms, how do we know he's not genuine? It's just he says it is and that's enough, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, that, that is the basis for self-ID. Uh, who are we to challenge people's individual understanding of what gender they are so yeah although uh, he is he's also kind of um he's not just transsexual he's also transracial so maybe mm. that's where he's tripped up or gonna gonna get a lot of flack Could uh, but be. yeah no that's um that is quite funny and i think i like the idea of peak based um so yeah any listeners um have any uh anyone any any incidents people they want to nominate for peak based send them in yeah absolutely and if he's if he is sincere it's peak work but if he's not it's peak based um, so Toby, I think that's pretty much everything. We've done another mammoth episode. I'm feeling a bit w worried about our producer having to produce this, but we've done another two hour one, but, um, we are doing very well and we thank you all the listeners. And I have to say our latest episode or the previous episode is still going because it was released, of course, a week, a day later, sorry, because Toby was in uh, Canada and it's still doing really well. It was on 24K in a week. And people might hear that and go, well, that's not much compared to YouTube, but that is elite. That is top 1% of podcasts in the world. And more importantly, we got 16th political podcast in Britain on Apple Podcasts. And we beat the likes of Navarra Media, Russell Brand, Owen Jones, Spiked, who we talked about today, The Telegraph, Chopper's Politics. We're absolutely Candace Owens, Stephen Crowder. We're just destroying all these people, Toby. I won't mention London Calling, but we're destroying all these people. <laughs> We're smashing it. Yeah. Um, which is why if you want to come to the live show, you better go and buy a ticket now because there are only 37 left. They're selling out fast. And given given that we are Britain's fastest growing podcast, they're bound to sell out, I would have thought, within a matter of days. Absolutely. And I was really pleased to see us in that chart because we say these things and we say we've got good numbers and we're growing and stuff. But to actually see it in the chart, I realize we have made a mark. It's quite impressive. 34 episodes. 
And our last one was at 25.9,000, by the way. I was just talking about the first week when I said 24K. To do that in 34 episodes, pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, now pretty we just good. need yeah, to the, the only make de- money. The only depressing thing, the depressing thing about that chart was that um, occupying both the number one and number two spots were Alistair Campbell and... Um, Rory Stewart, which was that was that was a little bit. Maybe we'll, we'll if we if we can knock them off the podium um, uh, and take first place, that would be quite an achievement. Yeah, because my blob friends, as we discussed, are listening to that podcast. I wonder who listened to that. I've met them now; perfectly nice people, but they're just living in a strange fantasy world. They listen to that podcast. They don't. I said, don't you mind that Alistair Campbell? You know the dossier, the the the, the war stuff, <laughs> guys. Anyone? And they were like, yeah, that wasn't great. It's like. You've forgiven him. <laughs> it's madness to me. I mean, they did point out it was going to be with Dominic Cummings originally. Now, that would have been worth listening to. But him and that Rory is just like, you know, it's just bombing each other, isn't it? But, um, but yeah, I mean, they, we have to remember, Toby, lastly, they get all the advantages. It's Apple. So they must be getting every kind of boost and every kind of preference. That's true. We probably yeah. have all kinds yeah. of shadow bands on us. That's true. Yeah, well, I don't know. On Spotify, as you pointed out, um, uh, there's a kind of, public health warning now attached to our podcast yeah if you want to find out the truth about covid click here and it takes you to the bbc the nhs etc yeah exactly i never saw it on the app but i found it on the desktop it is there so yeah, yeah and also on twitter you can't link to it without a warning so there's shenanigans afoot but nonetheless we're absolutely crushing weekly skeptic one of the biggest political podcasts in the country i did also know no one listens to me at gb news when i suggest a story or anything and everyone just thinks i'm this idiot but i'm actually when I last looked at the chart, I was like 20-something places ahead of Chopper's politics. And I'm sure he's a great guy, but he's coming to be head of politics at GB. And yet me, who chooses the stories largely for this podcast, don't I know, therefore, more about politics <laughs> and political media than, than Chopper's? Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't well, say that point. publicly. Uh, I think we, could better, better, better. We, might have to re- we might have to stop crowing about beating Chopper's politics uh, when he becomes one of your bosses at GB. Yeah, perhaps we should take that bit out as well. That's another, another <laughs> edit for poor old Jason. So, um, all right. Well, I think that's it, Toby. Unless there's anything else you want to add? Uh, any reviews? Do you know what? There was one review that I didn't like because it, so, it was so weird and long. And I, I didn't really understand it. But it still was five stars. So that was good. And um, if you are going to write an offensive review, at least put give it a five stars. But I'm not going to read it because I didn't like it. And I didn't totally understand it. Um, but... Not enough people have been leaving reviews, Toby, actually. So I, th- I think we need to encourage people to leave them again on the Apple app where we're 16th in the country. Go on there, leave a review. There are some comments, though, on the uh, Podbean app. And someone said that it was David Frost that invented the political monologue. What do you think to that? Because you claimed it was Tucker Carlson. Someone else has claimed to me that it was Bill Riley or O'Reilly, whatever he's called. Yeah, well, I think, I think David Frost definitely used to do it um, as, I think, an intro um, to that was the week that was, but that was really a that was a sort of that was more of a political satire show. It wasn't a news and current affairs show. So I still think Tucker may have been the first person to kind of graft the kind of uh, monologue onto the beginning of a news and current affairs show. What was TW three? That was the that same was, that thing. That was the week that was. Yeah, yeah that makes was sense. The same thing. Yeah, and it was. Well, he claimed it was, it was on that show. that he did it. Our commenter claimed it was right. it was on that, but um. Okay. That, that's in the same that's in the same mold as Bill Maher doing it and um you know David Letterman doing it and Johnny Carson doing it but that that's the conventional place for one of those monologues really uh, but doing it 
as a prelude to a more serious news and current affairs show, that I think was new and turning the anchor into an opinionated political personality. I think that I think that originated with Tucker. I could be wrong. Okay, well, it's quite a nuanced, pedantic point to end on. I'm glad we've ended on that. But we, <laughs> but we do look at all your comments, guys. So send in uh, nice ones. All right, well, I think that's it. Go to eventbrite.com. Look for Weekly Skeptic, Weekly Skeptic Live, May 20th at the Emmanuel Center. Go to my podcast, The Current Thing. Go to dailyskeptic.org and donate. But we'll see you next week. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.